APG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 321. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the APG Lakeside Cottage in beautiful Tiga K, South Carolina. Today's episode, Uber for Planes, updates on a few previous news stories, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, LL 1862 and the Belmere <laughs> or something like that. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on, flight 321 is ready for pushback. Yes, I nailed it. <laughs> right on. Nice Welcome pull, to the Airline Pilot <laughs> Show. I'm Captain Jeff, a, believe it or not, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. I know it's hard to believe. And uh, joining me today is a young lady sitting right next to me. Here's her theme song. Doctor? She's doctor. a doctor. Doctor? 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 And a marathon runner, a skydiver, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good to see you in person. Yeah, good to see you as well. We're in your beautiful lakeside cottage. We are. We are. And the landscapers, I think, have left. So hopefully no more noise interruptions for the rest of the show. Unless they hear me eating the rest of my sandwich over here. (laughs) And, uh... Also joining us from across the pond in his beautiful country estate outside of London, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, and currently a captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hello, mine host and the lovely Dr. Steph. Hi from uh, the United Kingdom. Great to be with you again. And last, but certainly not least, from his stately mansion on the north side of Atlanta, barbecue connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, soon to be Captain Dana Colton. Well, hello, everybody. Great to be back yet for another episode. Great to see the co-hosts of the day, which are all of us for change. It's a great thing, and uh, looking forward to another great show. Away we go. Away we go. All right. So, if you're uh, listening to the show for the first time, our apologies. We're sorry. Yes, but we are an aviation podcast, and we're always striving for accuracy. About 50%. 50% is our goal. Yes, yes. Yeah. And we usually uh, come we in pretty close. close. Yeah. 
Uh, so anyway, we're here. We have fun. We talk about news items that have occurred in the last week in aviation, and uh, we tackle your great feedback. So uh, you'll probably wonder why I am here in Stephanie's beautiful house. Why are you here? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I'm a stalker. He just, I came home from, you know, running errands this morning and he was here and he'd set up and he said, we're doing a show. I said, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm here because I'm on the way to my, hello, uh, my, uh, is that your daughter uh, goes, <laughs> yes. My daughter, uh, goes to school at Elon university, uh, just up the road, uh, on the other side of Greensboro, North Carolina. And, uh, this weekend is a, uh, an event. That oh look, there's a deer out there in your yard. Wow, oh, that dear. is amazing. Oh dear, oh dear. Yeah, so this uh, deer right out the window, I, literally within about ten feet of the front door of Steph's house, there's a deer eating something. What is the deer eating? Whatever Leaves from the tree. Yeah, they they basically are. You know, I don't even know why I bother with landscapers because the deer would probably just. It's do a the pretty deer. Me. Nice They're a nuisance. Is, They're is, that the, is that the new guest for the show today? Um, I mean, I've never seen a deer that close except for in a zoo. Oh, really? Yeah. No, they're Very all cool. over my neighborhood, and I'm terrified that I'm going to hit one eventually, but I have not yet. You're driving a Jeep. You're driving a Jeep, Steph. I mean, I don't know who would come off worse between you and a deer. <laughs> well, these are not particularly large deer, so probably the deer, unfortunately. Yeah. But, now, yeah, in the UK, quite, quite if, you, uh, if you hit a wild animal, uh, particularly one that's edible, you're not allowed to get out of your car and put it in the back of your car and drive off with it. But the person so. behind you is. So if, if you kill the animal, you're not allowed to grab it and put it in the freezer. But someone else who discovers it dead on the road is allowed to. So that's the answer. You always that's drive around strangest. in pairs. You hit them and someone else picks them up and... You kill them, we grill them? Yeah, it's the one. It's the roadside cafe. uh. And, you know, you're listening to the show thinking, wow, where else would I have gotten that information? (laughs) Roadkill protocol in the UK. Exactly. There you go. Well, it applies to airplanes too, you know. You know, if an airplane runs through a deer, kills it, then the guys at the the runways can go uh, pick them up and use them. There you go. For dinner. Okay. I didn't know that. I did not know that either. Oh, anyway. So as I was saying before I was distracted the re- the by the, uh, the deer. Yeah. The reason why I'm here is that my daughter goes to school at Elon university. I've mentioned that before on the show. Uh, she is the chairperson for her sorority's meaningful men weekend. And I, apparently it turns out that I am a meaningful man to her. And so I'm uh, on the way over there. Uh, that starts tomorrow. And, uh, so I knew I'd be driving right by Steph's beautiful place. And I asked her if she would be available on Thursday and we could do a live show, at least the two of us. Well, we're, I mean, it is live for everyone actually, but uh, in person, in person, there we go. And, uh, she said, yeah. And so uh, as long as we do it quickly, because she's, she needs to get to the airport because she's, uh, going to Hamburg, even though I kept saying Berlin on the last show, but you'll notice in the audio show, I never said Berlin. Uh. Jeff, Never, did you ever. say Homburg? That's the name of a hat. I'm, I'm sure she's Hamburg. going to Hamburg. Hamburg. Oh, Hamburg. I can't get anything right, apparently, today. So you can't get anything past you. the bread. Potato, potato, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Hamburg. I, I, no, actually, we've got, we've got some, probably got you some should, Germans in the chat room. 
I hear a lot of Americans pronounce it Hamburg, but yeah. everyone I've ever met from Hamburg says Hamburg. So oh. I'll pay attention this weekend, though, and well, I'll, I'll report back with the hamburger. correct. And I'll actually ask because. Okay. All right. But I, I don't think the hamburger was um, invented in Hamburg, right? Somebody correct me there. I think it was some <laughs> no kind of a uh, World's Fair or something like that here in the U.S. Is where we won't somebody bother invented the hamburger. You, Jeff, because we're already well below 50% now. Yeah, we're like down at about 20, 25 yeah, yeah. percent. We'll, we'll, we'll get better as we go on. Be a, as this, as this a, show actually trends yeah. back into It's a steep climb aviation. to get back to 50. Uh, All right. Uh, so uh, anyway, just drove in, uh, left uh, Atlanta this morning around uh, 6 o'clock, and it was a very nice drive. Got here, and uh, now we're together, and we're doing the show. It's great. Having a great time, and that's... Um, all I really can tell you, I had a great trip, a uh, three-day trip, uh, Monday through Wednesday, and I can tell you a little bit more about that, but first I'd like to hear from Steph, and you can tell us about what's been going on with you in the last what's few days. What's been going on with me? Well, it rained a whole bunch here, so um, didn't do a whole lot, but I did get an invitation a while back from Cirrus Aircraft to attend basically, it's kind of a sales pitch, but they had their Cirrus Vision Jet over at the um, Monroe Airport here, close to where I live. Well, about an hour away driving. Um, so I said, eh, free night of airplanes and food and drink? Sure, I'll sign me up. I'll, I'll come take a look at it. They're trying to sell you a jet? They're, they're just trying to sell airplanes, but they had the vision. They actually had three of them there. Two of them flew in, and I don't know where the other one. I'm sure they all flew in, but one was definitely their like model demo that they take around. So Did you get a chance to... Go up Climb there? in it, yep. Got it. Did you actually to... get to fly in it? No, no, no. Oh. Didn't get to fly in it. Um, but just got to, you know, sit in and tinker around a little bit and look at all the different, uh, you know, you get in and it, it just looks like a car, basically. <laughs> you know, it's all, everything is touchscreen, avionics, and um, you, know, you look down, you got your USB ports for your electronics, and, you know, everyone in the back has I mean, their own USB. Most people's cars don't even look, it kind of looks like a Tesla, right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, very. Very sophisticated, very slick. So that sounds um, fantastic, Steph. Were there a lot of people standing around? Standing around? Yeah, watching, looking at the airplane. Because yeah, when, when that happens, I think it's great to lean under the cockpit and go clear. <laughs> 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 so, but yeah, it, it was really uh, it was a nice event, and uh, they put on a nice presentation for not only the jet but the other um, aircraft, the SR twenty, SR twenty two, SR twenty two turbo. Um, it's a small world, and aviation is a, a frighteningly small world sometimes. Um, ran were you recognized? By one person, but yeah. I actually <laughs> um, ran into one of my bosses, who I didn't realize was a pilot, and he actually um, was purchasing, it. well, he had previously purchased an aircraft, but has not taken delivery of it yet. Not a jet, but wow. other serious model. So wow. um, very cool for him. And so we yeah. chatted for a while, and then I sat down for the presentation to have dinner, and ended up talking to a guy who is acquaintances with the family of one of my best friends from med school. So that was interesting. And then I had the pleasure of meeting one of our listeners, Jonathan Shirley. So and we chatted for a little bit as well. Excellent. It was, it was a fun, fun evening. Lots, uh, you know, if I can't be out there flying, it's a nice aviation fix, at least. A shout out to Jonathan. Yes. It's nice a to meet pretty you, uh, swish jet or a, a prop depending on which version you buy, isn't it, Steph? It looks fantastic. Yeah, so the jet is a single-engine jet, uh, which right. is very interesting looking. You know, it's got the engine mounted in uh, towards the rear. It's got kind of a uh, V-tail configuration. Um, 
very roomy on the inside. It looks very small from the outside, but then you get in and there's there's all kinds of space. Um, pretty I wasn't comfortably would seat five adults, uh, even with you in it, Dana. It would, it would still be very roomy. Five adults and two very, very small people, presumably children, in the back. So, What was the name of that car that was made by uh, AMC? Um, it was like a big, bulbous-looking... You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it was before your time. I'm not sure. Do you know, you know what I'm talking about, Dana? Uh, AMC made a um, American Motor Company. Never heard of Somebody it. Somebody help me out in the chat room. Did they make... Uh, it reminds me Michael of that kind of... Michael come up with that one. Yeah. Pacer? I think you're thinking of the Jetsons uh, again, aren't you? Well, the Jetsons, yeah, that's another uh, <laughs> thing that it reminds pacer. me of. Pacer. Everybody's saying Pacer. Was it a Pacer? Okay. Thank you. Gosh, I did. AMC Pacer. AMC Pacer. How about that? Yeah. So it kind of reminds me of that. Kind of big and... You don't yeah, remember the Pacer? No, you were not even born, probably. Oh. Neither was I. Does the pacer yeah. fly? Why are we talking about it? No, oh, just, just the design. The, the design. Yeah, yeah it's, oh, very, okay. it's very bubble Bubbly. Bubble well, like your yeah. cocktail shaker yes. back there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah kind of like that. So, cool. All right. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, um, that's fun. Did Thanks. you get any flying in at all? No. No, the weather's not. Like that's been that long since we've done the last show. But, no, it's you know, not. So I probably kind of crappy. I, I had plenty of opportunity this past weekend, but I tackled some uh, household uh, renovations that I've been putting off for a while. So yeah, I can priorities. verify that. There, I see uh, painting yes. supplies and equipment <laughs> all over a bit the place of painting upstairs. <laughs> so that took you know. You think, oh, I'll just do, you know, I'll paint one room. It'll take just a couple hours. It'll be fine. No, two day event. Nah, it always and takes I'm still longer. Not really finished. So nice. Captain Nick, how have you been, sir? Uh, I've been fine, thank you very much. Still not flying, just, you know, on this uh, period where I'm just sitting around uh, waiting for two months to elapse before I carry on with my flying career. So, but I, I've been keeping myself very busy. A lot been going on. Uh, we've got uh, a bathroom renovation uh, happening because we know you guys are coming over to my place for Farnborough. And Jilly was so embarrassed with the state of our bathroom last time you visited. She said, we're going to have to do something about that so i said i don't know goodness what for that yeah. i mean I, I, I wasn't thinking i was thinking about staying somewhere else actually because it was yeah, so too. horrible it me is too. like 20 years bringing up kids you know your family bathroom starts off looking brilliant and turns into something that is decidedly tired um so that that's in I progress should, i should state for the record that no, neither of us nice. had that impression <laughs> really, at all. It's we not going to have one of those electronic was very showers nice and, uh, you know, all new units and well, everything. Well, now you're just showing off because no, well. you haven't been to my house and talk about <laughs> dated uh, well, know, anyway, that, bathrooms you, I, I hope you like it when you get here because it's the one you're using. Um, and uh, we've uh, middle of producing the new studio downstairs. Uh, now we've got the walls painted partly. Got to take at least three coats to get that done. Just had screed put down on the floor. Uh, that was today. So all that's in progress. And then last night, <laughs> very sadly, you know, I have three gun dogs. Uh, one of them, uh, and we're pretty sure we know which one now, uh, decided to imitate a, uh, a farmer's muck spreader and at 3 a.m. Uh, just at loose with a very, very upset stomach. Uh, both ends went, and uh, Jilly and I woke up going, what's that awful smell? <laughs> 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 and 
had from yep. 3 a.m. till 5 a.m. It was just a case of gagging and wiping and cleaning. And out comes the old vax, which we kept just for this purpose of cleaning carpets whenever we have a little doggy accident. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it is foul. It's horrible. You lose a night's sleep and the dog mopes around and he's still not right. But he's, he's uh, you know, we haven't fed him anything because he doesn't want to eat anyway. So, uh, you know, it's just one of the things you have to accept every now and again, like having small children, you're going to have an accident, but there you yeah. go. Well, so, at least neither you or Jilly become sick yourselves at the sight or smell of those things, because I've seen that happen too. And then that just makes for extra cleanup. It, yeah. <laughs> it does. It would. Luckily, after bringing up two children, I think you're pretty immune to most of exactly. the smells. Although, dog um poop is it's a little more um, yeah it's fragrant. Like baby fragrant. poop times three so that's yeah, pretty tough anyway that's we do that. apologize to everybody that is listening to the show right now and perhaps <laughs> On their lunch break. in the middle of a meal yes yeah all right enough of that um the best thing that happened to me this week was uh going off to see uh the kids at St. benedict's school um, uh, one of our, apparently, uh, I hadn't uh, come across uh, Rob's before, but uh, Rob is one of our uh, devoted listeners, been listening to us for a while, and he is the headmaster of a school in Ealing, uh, St. Benedict's, and he uh, runs and has run for many years a, an aviation group, and he asked if I would have time to come up and talk to them, which I did yesterday. Got a little bit of audio coming up on that. Uh, it was a fabulous uh, time. Rob's a super guy. He uh, uh, is a true aviation enthusiast. He's uh, learned to fly himself, um, and uh, he's got models and pictures on his wall, and he, he talks with such enthusiasm about it. It's it's quite humbling to speak to someone who enjoys the show so much and is such a nav geek. So it was a great pleasure to go down there and uh, chat to his kids. We have that audio right here if you want me to play it. Oh, yeah, go for it. All right, here we go. Hi there everybody, it's Captain Nick here and I'm sitting in the wonderful St. Benedict's School here in Ealing in London and in a minute I'm about to be devoured by a bunch of um, aviation mad kids so I'm fingers crossed I can uh, ask Rob here who's sitting beside me to protect me and uh, stop me from being too embarrassed. Rob is the principal of the St. Benedict's uh, Junior School here, and he is a fantastic av geek. I've just been chatting to him for a quarter of an hour, and he loves all things aviation, and made it a point to create an after-school interest group called the... Yes, the St. Benedict's uh, Aviation Club. Well, and, and it's the aviation club that I've come to talk to this afternoon. But let's have a quick chat with Rob and find out uh, how he, first of all, got an interest in aviation and, more importantly, uh, got to become a firm follower of the Airline Pilot Guy show. So, hello. Uh, big hello there to uh, Captain Jeff, Captain uh, Dana and to Steph and to all the APG listeners. No, I um, flew out to Dominica. In 1976, flew out to Antigua on the uh, BA-707s, was absolutely hooked at that point. And then later in life, was lucky enough to uh, fly out of Booker Wickham uh, with the Wick Wickham Air Centre. 
absolutely love aviation and we've got a number of children here who feel as passionately about aviation as well. That's brilliant. Um, now, how long have the Sea Aviation Group been going? So, actually, I started when I was teaching in the senior school, so that goes back to, I suppose, the early 2000s or so, but I've been based here in the, in the junior school for the last 13 years, so I guess the last six or seven years we've been meeting regularly um, throughout the term. And you have one real success story. You were telling me about one of your ex-pupils and a member of your group who has gone on to do great things. Yes, and uh, this is uh, Flight Lieutenant Lewis Travers, a really, really lovely young man. He's finishing his fast jet training at the moment in Anglesey, and he came back a few weeks ago to talk to the young people about being in the RAF and his interests outside of school. But he was always very passionate about flying, and it's wonderful to see that he's made his dream come true. That's absolutely fantastic. Uh, we're going to keep this short because we all know how, uh, how long our little meet-up uh, recordings go on and we have to get into the classroom to start setting up. But uh, perhaps a few final words. Well, just to say a really huge thank you to Captain Nick. He's been so kind to come along to our school today and I know the children are going to gain so much uh, from the conversation. So thank you very much indeed. Um, and just say blue skies, unlimited visibility and tailwinds to all listeners that's very kind of you rob and back to you in the studio Jeff. well thank you captain nick and thank you rob for hosting captain nick and uh oh it was it was it. lovely i've got a lovely bottle of single malt whiskey down as a thank you there downstairs which i shall enjoy nice. rob thank you for that but it, you know what it's guys like rob who enthuse young people uh, and that is going to create the, the nut, the kernel uh, of the future pilots that will uh, make our industry great. So I really take my hat off to him. He's been doing it now for uh, well over 10 years at his school. And, um, you know, he's obviously um, absolutely enamored with the idea of getting these y youngsters interested in aviation. And we just need more Robs in this world, that's for sure. Yes. I agree. Absolutely. All right, Dana, um, anything new with you? Well, yeah, I had a, a very uh, exciting uh, week at work. Um, got to fly my second to last trip with Captain Tony. Excuse me, I had a hiccup there, and, and I kept that quiet so nobody could hear it. Uh, anyways, uh, so it was uh, in <laughs> reroute, reroute God strike again, and we ended up with the taxiing out and just about to take off. And did the uh, takeoff warning check, which is when you advance the throttles just before you take the runway to make sure that you're not getting any takeoff warnings. For example, the flaps and slats and the auto brake system, um, the auto spoiler system, all are in the proper positions. And when you're advancing, you shouldn't hear anything. Well, when he advanced it, I noticed that on our overhead enunciator panel, which is the uh, panel that gives us any warning messages, uh, the left outboard um, anti-skid fail message came up, so we had to taxi clear the runway. I did the quick procedure that I knew that would hopefully clear it, and that's just to uh, off and then arm the auto, auto brakes. That did not work. We ran the procedures. Oh, you got to go outside and kick it. Yeah, I, well, you know what? I was there. I was thinking, you know, I could take the wrench that the TSA won't <laughs> let me through with and, and bang on a little bit. would probably fix it. But, yeah, we ran the procedures, went and did not fix the problem after, you know, resetting the circuit breakers, the QRH, which is a quick reference handbook, 
went back to the gate. Maintenance was scratching their head because they tried, and they were still getting the same fault. Then they go out to clear, and then there's a test circuit, which you you know go from off to test, and you hit the test and test all the circuits. Well, none of the message message were messages were coming up. Maintenance is ready to sign it off, and I said, mm, no, none of the messages are coming up when you go on the test. So uh, they took a further look at it and realized that that is the correct uh, uh, answer, and they had to ground the airplane. We then deplaned everybody, uh, and as we're deplaning everybody, maintenance says, oh, no, no, we fixed it, we fixed it. Well, you guys just told us to take everybody off the airplane with a 12 o'clock ready time. So we brought everybody back up and went up to uh, Norfolk, which is the exact same first flight that uh, Captain Jeff and I did the two weeks prior, that Norfolk flight. The only difference is that we were coming back. And uh, on the way back, I had uh, a, uh, a fellow Acme pilot that actually listens to the show. There's one, at least one person out there that listens to the show. Hate to burst everybody's bubble. But uh, so anyways, uh, Acme Pilot, and he listens to the show and was really excited when he looked up to see that I was the first officer flying. So we had a very nice conversation coming back, and you have some audio that I I recorded as well. It's first officer Dana, and we... Uh we had a special uh, APG guest that rode in the flight deck with me that is a avid listener, and he pays, has been uh, listening to the show for a while now. And he uh, has a few things to say about uh, his enjoyment that he just had on the flight deck with us. Uh, my buddy Tony and I, second to last trip, I'm flying ever as a captain, as a first officer before I upgrade to captain. So here he goes. Nathan, say, go ahead and say hello. Hey everybody at APG, this is Nathan. I just had the uh, honor to uh, board an Acme flight and uh, ride the jump seat on the lovely Mad Dog. And when I got up to the cockpit, I saw Dana sitting up there at the controls. So I was really excited to get to ride with the uh, famous Dana from the APG podcast, which I've been listening to since last fall when I found out about it from a fellow line pilot here at Acme. I love the show. I've learned a ton by listening to it. love listening to uh, Captain Jeff and Nick and Dr. Steph and soon-to-be Captain Dana. So it's really an honor and a pleasure to get to watch Dana fly down here from Norfolk. Did an outstanding job with his uh, fellow Captain Tony and uh, look forward to seeing him on the line with his four stripes on his uh, uniform soon. So thanks again for the great show, everybody. Thank you very much, Nathan. Thank you for coming and fly with us and uh, have a good time with us. And thank you for continuing to listen because without the listeners like yourself, then we don't have a show. So appreciate it. And to the rest of the community, have a great day. Bye-bye. Cheers, Nathan. Yeah, it was uh, it was great to have me. He was uh, can't I don't want to give it away what he was doing, but uh, they're doing that at the company right now. Uh, uh, doing some uh, checks. So, anyways, some observations, some, line observations. Yeah, uh, yeah, we won't secret give it away. squirrel. So, yeah, so he he uh, commented on the fact that we were we you know identified a lot of threats. So it made made uh, Tony and I uh, that you were well below standards. Well below standards. Well below that fifty percent threshold. So <laughs> it, <laughs> so we ended up uh, having a domicile over after that. Uh, that was actually my fifth or sixth take on that because I kept on having technical issues. First, uh, the second or third recording was actually the best one. But anyways, uh, finished up the trip yesterday, and I actually went to the flight station and purchased my upcoming uh, upcoming uniform requirements, which is a, a new captain's hat. 
So that was quite Ooh. exciting. Yay. Yay. So I now have it. And Go Patriots. I will, I, will not, I will not don it until the actual day comes, and I start training a week from this coming Saturday. So I'm getting ready for that, spooled up. Um, and I think uh, Tony, not that he listens to the show, but we had a long heart-to-heart because there was some, some pretty um, disturbing news that came out in the last week or so that kind of ruined ruined my excitement, but he, uh, he kicked me back in line. So that's all I'm going to say on that, and... Uh, Looking forward to my last trip, which is everybody you know that listens to the show regularly knows uh, and has heard him before. My final trip will be with Gary Donato, and that starts this coming Sunday morning, and it's a three-day trip. So I'm really looking forward to that, and uh, a lot of ways not looking forward to it because it's my last trip as a first officer. Wow, wow, that's kind of wow. it's kind of hitting home now. It really is. So that's yeah. all I have to say. That's a shame you had to fly with Gary, too, on your last trip. I know. It's going to be terrible. I mean, <laughs> hopefully I uh, have enough bail money with me. Oh, well. Well, hey, well deserved. Enjoy that last trip. Yeah. Looking forward uh, to hey, it. Can you t- take some pictures of you by the airplane for us? Me by the airplane? Sure. Yeah, on your last trip as an FI, would be great to have them. Yeah, yeah. I, I can uh, certainly do that. I have uh, probably could tweet out a couple of photos of Tony and I together the last uh, trip and I'm just right. terrible when it comes Memories. to all that stuff. Oh, I know, and you know what? I'm the biggest sap in the world. I mean, I, I, I cry. <laughs> I'll be honest, I cry. I mean, it, you know, I'm a real man that admits it. Every leg, actually. Every leg. Is that right? You know, yeah. it, it, yeah. it was very upsetting to fly with Jeff the last time, and Tony was very upsetting as well. But I mean, like like three years ago when I flew with him, he cries every leg. Oh, stop! So it. nothing, every nothing's emotional. changed. That's because my <laughs> landings are always so beautiful. It just puts yeah, a tear to my eye. Touches, That's it. yeah. Oh, by the way, this last trip, I greased on every darn single landing. I'm thinking, now I get into this nice, <laughs> no, good landing no wreck. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. That's probably true. Yeah, uh, we've only got your word for that, you know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. But, uh, I, I've seen the truth, just, actually. I've, yeah, I have witnessed thanks. the truth. <laughs> There's no getting I'm, around I'm that. Assuming, I'm assuming you mean that in a positive way? Of course. I th- okay, good. I've seen my chiropractor three times since that Columbus <sighs> event. The bill's okay. in the mail for you. I told you. I mean, he, did, he did clear it with HR. And that meeting that we had regarding that guy right there? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. yeah exactly. Okay, he's out so. of here. That's the final straw. Um, on this last trip, I forgot to mention, I did, um, well, on the first day, um, we were in Greensboro, and I ended up uh, renting a car, driving over to Elon, and having a nice uh, meal, uh, Indian cuisine with my daughter. Great, great Indian uh, Indian food. So ended up in Providence on our second layover, and uh, a guy had contacted me, his name's Sean Chuplis, uh, a few weeks ago uh, regarding a uh, little side business that uh, he has set up. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, ADSB transceivers, receivers, transceivers, whatever they're called. Um, the uh, one of the most uh, famous ones or common ones out there, I think, is made by uh, Sunny's. Uh, is it Sunny's? Um, not Sunny. Um, Sporties. <laughs> God. <laughs> Sporties uh, Aviation. And it's called the Stratus. Stratus. And it's expensive. It's like a $1,000 little unit, but it's like a little uh, attitude heading reference system and an ADSB thing all wrapped up in one thing. And 
Apparently, there is a project out there, uh, an open source uh, kind of thing, using a uh, Raspberry Pi uh, motherboard and uh, enclosures and antennas and that kind of thing. And the software is out there, uh, and it's called uh, Strat Stratux, I think. S T R A T U X, I believe. And uh, that's the open source version of what what the Stratus does as a commercial option, and, and for about a quarter of the price. Uh, you can actually even less than that if you buy all the stuff on your own and make your own ADS-B AHARS uh, compatible device. Uh, but uh, Sean has a little side business called Crew Dog Electronics where he uh, m- makes these things and puts them all together for you using that open source software. Again, the uh, Stratix open source software. And uh, so he ended up uh, sending a uh, unit, a a kind of a kit. Actually, it was all put together, and it was like a combo kit. And uh, he asked if, you know, uh, actually, before he did, before he sent it, he said, could you, you know, you mind if I send this to you and you can use it? And I said, well, I can't really do that at my airline, but I do know somebody sitting right next to me here who is a general aviation pilot who would uh, love to uh, be able to test it out. Yeah, be happy to test it out and give it a try, and next time I go up, I'll take it and See yeah. how it goes. So he saw that I was going to be in Providence, and he is at the Naval War College uh, in Newport, Rhode Island. And he said, hey, if you want, let's get together for a beer or lunch or something. And so he picked me up from the hotel, and we had lunch. Uh, went to a nice little fa place. Fa? 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 Ga? Fa? Um, actually, I had fa steak. I don't know what the... Faux? Vietnamese, actually, uh, pho, everybody says, and including myself. Pho. But then I learned that it's actually pho. P-H-O is pronounced pho. And it's a Vietnamese um, restaurant. And uh, it's a great uh, noodle soup. And, uh, of course, you know, we uh, talked about his his background. Very uh, interesting guy. He's also a, uh, a pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier. and uh, But he is attending the uh, Naval War College right now. And I forgot to uh, record some audio, but um, anyway, I'm sure we're going to be talking to Sean in the future, perhaps after you have a chance to test the, uh, mm-hmm. the unit. Um, we'll uh, have Sean on the show, and he can talk to you about it if you're a general aviation pilot out there looking for an affordable solution to use with your ForeFlight or iFly GPS, or there's several different uh, EFB solutions for your iOS or Android devices. So uh, pretty cool. So I, I'm looking forward to hearing what Steph thinks about it. And uh, looking forward uh, to try it. Thank you very much, Sean. Yeah, Sean, Appreciate thanks uh, again for uh, picking me up and, and uh, taking me to lunch. That was a, lo- a lot of fun. All right. So and then I think I was looking over here in our intro section. And it looks like we have a uh, some audio feedback from Ray Davis. And uh, he wanted us to play this about a pending meetup here in the future. G'day listeners, it's Ray from Sydney, Australia here. Just wanting to send out a shout out to those that were looking to head down to Wings Over Illawarra Air Show, which is taking place on the 5th and 6th of May, which is in just over a week's time. Uh, we're looking to combine a listener meetup of PTUK and APG listeners. So if you're interested, uh, you're more than welcome to come along and join us. 
uh, we'll, we'll be planning the meetup on the 5th of May, which is a Saturday, and the meeting time will be at 10 a.m. at the base of the commentary box at the air show itself. So come along and say hello. Feel free to wear your PTUK and APG t-shirts if you have them. If you don't, that's okay. You're more than welcome anyway. So just recapping, we're organising a meetup of PTUK listeners and APG listeners and the meeting time will be at 10am on Saturday the 5th of May at Wings over Illawarra. Looking forward to seeing everyone there and now it's back to you guys in the studio. Uh, yeah, just something I was thinking of. Uh, it's been a while since we've had a UK meetup, and I'm stuck on the ground for a little while. Uh, I've got a month free next month. Um, any UK listeners who would be interested in perhaps getting together at the RAF Museum Hendon in uh, London for a meetup one day, would love to know uh, how many of you would be interested in coming along, uh, whether you'd be able to make it during the week, where obviously uh, we'd have a bit more space, more you know, less uh, tourists around, a bit more uh, kind of room, for t- uh, time to ourselves, or whether it would need to be a weekend. So please uh, uh, pile in on uh, Slack, preferably, or uh, Twitter, if not, and uh, let me know your thoughts. Cheers. The Coffee Fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the Coffee Fund is your way to support the APG show financially if you have the resources to do so. And a couple different ways to do that. Uh, you can find out information about how to join the Coffee Fund cadre by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com coffee. And since our last episode using the classic method, we have a young man who hosts his own podcast and his name, Brandon Gonzalez. And... Podcasting a Plane, I believe, is his podcast. And uh, thank you very much, Brandon. By the way, he sent me a nice little note um, mentioning the fact that it's uh, his one-year anniversary. He's been doing this for a whole year now. So please check out his podcast available on all the places to find your great podcasts. And uh, Steve Trumbell uh, sent in his recurring payment. So thank you, both of you, for using the Coffee Fun Classic method. And... Let's see, the patrons uh, at Patreon, we have a couple of new ones here. Uh, Alex Michaud, Steve Pride, and Ison Taylor. So thank you very much for becoming patrons of the show. And if you are interested again in becoming part of the Coffee Fun Cadre, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Stand by for news.
All right, let's uh, dig into the news folder and starting off with uh, this incident that I think that uh, might be interesting to hear some commentary from Captain Nick regarding it. Uh, it was a Viet Jet Airbus A321-200, so you know, relatively new airplane, the 321, performing flight 627 from Da Nang to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. They were on initial climb out out of Da Nang's runway 35 left when both engines, which were CFM-56s, I don't know what model or version of those uh, engines uh, are on that particular airplane. I don't know if they're the same ones that uh, were on the Southwest, the uh, 7B. Anyway, regardless, showed EGT over temperature warnings, prompting the crew to stop the climb at 4,000 feet and return to Da Nang. The left-hand engine stalled. The EGT over-temperature indications continued. The right-hand engine stalled. Both engines continued to show EGT over-temperature indications. The left-hand engine was shut down two minutes after the first indications. Crew received an AC essential bus fault, a DC bus one fault indication, and a fuel inerting system fault. The aircraft managed to land safely on Da Nang's runway 35 right about 15 minutes after departure. And uh, let's see, this was updated on the 12th of uh, April, so a couple weeks ago it said it was the aircraft was still on the ground in Da Nang. I would imagine mm-hmm. it's probably not still on the ground at Da Nang. Uh, but again, this was um, an event that occurred a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I thought, wow, uh, talking about what do you do when you're when you're in a situation like this, both engines are showing over temperature warnings and uh and the you know compressor stalling on the right engine and apparently uh enough bad stuff happening happening to the left engine that they had to shut it down two minutes after the first indication so uh, did you have a chance to take a look at this nick yeah i i did uh jeff and uh, i went back to um the herald and looked at the story in uh uh, as it's there and read some of the comments as well and uh i have to say that I've got not a lot to offer on this because um, 321 is not a familiar type to me. Um, I know it's basically, I mean, it's twin engine bus, so the 330 I fly is kind of similar, but I'm sure there are significant differences. And this particular, <coughs> excuse me, series of problems, I need to take a swig of beer here. Oh, well. Please do. We need to too right now. <coughs> Hang on. Cheers. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah, you I'm got the only one without a drink. It's a drinking game, didn't you oh know? My God. I'll, be, I'll be right back. I'm going to make a hot toddy. <laughs> so uh, this particular series of faults, uh, I'm scratching my head going, uh, I don't see how they're linked with the engine over temperatures. I can see how if you've ended up shutting down engines, you're going to end up with um, possibly an AC essential buzz fault if uh, the other... Um, Buzz doesn't pick up the AC essentials. Um, for those who aren't familiar, we have a buzz is basically a, an ele- electrical feed to various systems. And uh, the ones that are most important are called the essential buzzes. And we have uh, an alternating current one, an AC essential, and a, a DC essential, a direct current one. And uh, they're fed from one of the uh, generators, uh, I don't know, on 321, I'm guessing it's engine one. And if that feed fails, engine 2's generator will automatically pick it up um, so that that essential buzz is always fed. 
for the very good reason that it feeds a lot of essential systems. It's um, essential. Yeah, if you get a failure of that switchover, of that pickup of feed from the other buzz, you then, then you can usually manually override it and manually select it and force it in. And if uh, there's an additional fault, so uh, you definitely won't get it, then the, then you get the AC essential bus fault. And you lose some significant systems. Um, you've also got a DC1 bus fault, um, a fuel inerting system fault. Now, that's a system we don't have on any of our aircraft, but I know a little about it. Um, after, I mean, the classic accident was the 747 climbing out of New York where a uh, short circuit in a booster pump ignited the fumes in an empty tank and blew the airplane up, basically. Um, th that's um, really why you have inerting systems. And what it means is that when a tank empties and you've just got inflammable vapor, uh, which can, if it's ignited, be uh, cause catastrophic uh, problems for the aircraft, you flood that tank with an inert gas, uh, uh, perhaps nitrogen or perhaps carbon dioxide, CO2, and that uh, takes away any possibility of a fire and explosion in that tank. So it had a, a fault with that. Now, whether that meant that it was... Yes, I don't know whether it meant that the system was not going to operate when the tank was empty or whether the system operated um, prematurely. I don't know. Uh, we don't have enough. I'm looking at all this thinking that it, it doesn't sound to me like any of these things were actually happening. It was just like bad indications. It, it could be, uh, or it could be just faults linked with the loss of the AC Essential buzz. Mm -hmm. It could be that they're systems that the AC Essential feeds, and once you lost that, you lost the systems associated. Um I don't see any connection with that and the the double EGT over temperature. Now that's a serious problem. If you've got both engines over temping uh, simultaneously, then you've got to scratch your head and ask why. They have both have independent uh, FADEX, uh, digital engine controllers, that are, uh, you know, look after each engine individually. Why they should suddenly both decide that they're not going to control the temperature properly uh why both engines had had significant problems almost simultaneously i don't know on a twin engine airplane you're really going to be reluctant to shut an engine down after an egt over temperature because normally the action is just the throttle back you put less fuel in you burn less fuel the temperature of the engine drops and the egt that was previously exceeding limits comes back into limits it's only if it's if it's stuck in a uh, in a stalled situation, would you shut it down? But then if you've only got one engine and that is also giving problems, the next thing you do is relight the engine you've just shut down because usually shutting down clears any problems with airflow. And now you can relight it again. And I certainly would have done because if I've got an EGT over temperature on both engines, golly, uh, I'm really, I don't care whether the engines uh, get pretty damn hot and end up being wrecked. I'd rather have at least, you know, both of them turning, perhaps one providing power and the other are idle if it's particularly bad. So I'm just putting myself in a situation like this and saying what I would do. I don't know what additional information uh, we don't have about this emergency. But I see nothing here that's really 
linking and giving me a true indication of um, what the problem was. However, it pretty nasty problem though to have both engines over temping. Uh, one engine obviously shut down, then coming in with one remaining engine that is obviously indicating a problem as well. Glad I wasn't uh, the crew on that airplane. That they've done a damn good job uh, to get it on the ground from from the information we've got here. Yeah, this narrative is kind of confusing to me because the way it's written, it says that both engines showed the over-temperature warnings in the EGT, and I believe those are at least most of the airplane or all the airplanes I've ever flown. The EGT temperature uh, system instrumentation is all self-powered, self-contained. You know, it's not part of the electrical system of the aircraft. And it looks like in this narrative, the the only time that they started getting all these other warnings was after they shut down the left engine and. But in the narrative, they said the right engine stalled, but they shut down the left engine. So I, I'm kind of confused. So yeah, I'm hoping we'll get some more clarification on what exactly happened here. But it sounds like, you know, I'm not even sure that the engines were actually over-temping. Well, it, it, to have false indications from both sides, when you've got two independent systems, the only thing common between them is the display screen that they're fed to, really. Uh, it's just like having uh, you've got two independent computers, one from each engine. The fact that both of them were indicating an over-temperature, I'm going, well, that is really weird because they are truly independent. And it's only the um, the DMC and the screens, the, the sort of... Uh, um dmc uh direct oh god monitor computer it's basically the computer that provides the images for the screen uh and the screen itself that are the common portion uh and the dmc does nothing but display the information and i don't think they could do that in error so um i'm, I'm just and I'm, no we we need more stuff but it sounds a bit frightening to me sounds a bit tricky this one very much so all right. Well, just thought we oh, actually Ross in England is one that sent that to us. And he said that he was reading through the uh, Aviation Herald and he said this uh, story sounds crazy. Perhaps you guys would want to discuss it on the show. So well, I wish I could have provided a, a deeper insight, but I, I, I also agree. It's, it's a crazy looking story. Nothing seems to indicate to me a, uh, a, a realistic way to work out what happened. Yeah. Well, we might as well just stay on the subject of the CFM-56 engine, uh, the CFM-56-7B to be exact, the uh, engine involved with the couple of incidents that Southwest had on their 737-700s uh, losing fan blades. Uh, the FAA released an emergency airworthiness directive Um just a few days back concerning all CFM 567B engines with 30,000 or more flight cycles. And uh, in parentheses here in this article, estimated 352 engines within the USA and 681 engines globally. And so uh, we, we were anticipating that a, uh, an emergency AD was going to be issued regarding this engine and show enough it has. And I believe that uh, Southwest ended up canceling some flights um over the weekend i believe it was sunday and they had to cancel it was a pretty small percentage actually yeah but it really didn't infect, affect that many flights as far as i know um i think there were a lot of planes spotted at uh, up in seattle though for inspections oh really okay what i so, saw on twitter anyway oh uh, so. so maybe uh boeing had uh the the best facilities for 
for taking care of all that. Again. Make sure I'm not speaking. I think their customers just returning the airplanes back to the manufacturer. Yeah, you have it back. Now, now to be fair, again, uh, just as in the uh, Dreamliner, uh, it's an engine issue, uh, not not an airplane issue, at least in this case. Good point. So, well made, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, but it's also an engine that's been used quite a bit. I mean, it's a lot of cycles on on that engine. Yeah. It's, well, it's, well, this per- this variant though is a is a newer variant, so that may have more to do with it uh, as well. True. True. So. Yeah. Oh, you know, I talked on the last show about the, um, there was a Delta flight uh, heading, I think it was flight 50 heading from Atlanta to Heathrow. And they had a a situation where they had a fire on the right engine, I believe. And I said that we didn't really know that much about it. In fact, at that point, uh, it hadn't even made the uh, uh, Aviation Herald website. And I said, something to the effect that, you know, we could tell you more about the airplane and the engine type and everything else. If we had that information from the aviation Herald, well, I guess Simon was listening to me, (laughs) probably not. Uh, but, uh, I guess he was waiting to get more information about this incident, but, uh, it is now, um, on the aviation Herald website and it was a, uh, Airbus, uh, three thirty three hundred that, uh, had the engine fire and the engine was a Pratt and Whitney, 4000 series engine. And, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to the, uh, aviation Herald article, which also has some great video, both from the inside the cabin, looking at the right wing, uh, after landing and all the smoke pouring from it. And also the, uh, uh emergency, uh, fire vehicles, uh, approaching the airplane once it landed. And also, some pretty good uh, audio as well, which I'll play a little snippet of, and I thought that was uh, kind of interesting. So let's have a listen. Let's have a listen. Oh, you know what I was going to do? I was going to edit this audio so that it would play like right immediately. Yeah, we're not going to do that. So there's a point in the audio which you'll have a chance to listen to. Uh, again, link in the show notes where, uh, the tower controller is urgently, um, encouraging the ARFF vehicles to get on the runway as quickly as possible. And in his frustration, you can hear him saying like, you know, I don't care. You just get on the engines on fire. Everybody, you're welcome to go on the, uh, on the runway and put the, put the fire out. And, uh, I thought it was kind of amusing. The, uh, the exchange on the uh, radio there at Atlanta international airport. And I do apologize for not having that all ready to go for the show here, but, um, I'll, uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll edit that and, uh, with the appropriate audio and you can listen to it on your own time. And, uh, I listened to the one from inside the cabin and, uh, you can hear the passenger going, Oh, I don't like this. I want to get off this airplane. I don't blame her. Um, I, you know, she's sitting looking, right over the wing that's on fire and there's smoke pouring from uh, uh, around the wing and where the spoilers are deployed the smoke uh, billowing up there so it must have been concerning for the passengers but I just want to put people's minds at rest when we're sitting in a situation like this on the runway 
and we've got a severe problem. We're usually in direct communication with the uh, fire chief who's in the fire vehicles who can see exactly what's going underneath the, on underneath the aircraft. And he, as he's moving up, he's probably giving a commentary to the captain explaining how severe the fire is. And we are happy to evacuate the passengers out of the aircraft, but we know if we do that, we're quite likely to injure several passengers. So in our minds, we're always uh, trying to weigh up the severity of the fire and the danger to everyone on board and the danger or weigh that against the danger of an evacuation. Because once we say evacuate, 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 it's out of our control and things can happen that we don't anticipate. Um, whereas if the engine fire is is easily brought under control by the fire trucks and the crew chief, uh, the fire chief is telling us that, then it's much safer to leave you on board, deal with the problem, and then bring you off in slow time downstairs where you won't get injured. So I do understand entirely people's nervousness when they're looking at a situation like this, but I I urge you to listen and trust the crew's uh, assessment of the situation. What I thought was interesting about this, uh, Nick, was on the previous show, we did play some of the audio from the uh, passengers inside the cabin, and you could hear the captain getting on the PA system and basically saying what you're saying, you know, like uh, it's, it's under control. We're communicating with the uh, fire people and uh, they, they said they're going to be able to put it out. Please remain seated. You know, this is the safest thing that we can do for you right now. Uh, but what's interesting is that uh, the, the audio that you'll listen to when you go to the show notes, <laughs> it uh, actually, you can hear the other side. You can hear what's going on um, externally, uh, from the situ- uh, in the situation and the fact that yes, you can hear the, uh, emergency fire people talking with the airline crew and the tower people and saying, yeah, it's under control. You know, there, there's not a need to evacuate. And, uh, so it's just a, it's an interesting, um, uh, comparison it's a different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and don't forget, uh, you know, Nick hit it right on the spot. A lot of times the safest place to be is on the aircraft, um, you know, you've got the experts outside looking at the situation and giving a play by play. And one doesn't have to look too far or too long ago to realize that the safest place actually is on the airplane with the, uh, the incident in San Francisco where the fire truck actually ran over one of the passengers that was, you know, evacuating from the aircraft. So, you know, a lot of times, unless it's, it's a necessity, uh, staying on the aircraft is probably the safest and best choice. Until we, you know, you know, until as everybody else has mentioned, if it's told to us that evacuation is the best choice, then then that's when it uh, becomes necessary. But yeah, you know, just my two cents on that. Not- of course, the San Francisco incident to which you refer, you mm-hmm. wouldn't want to stay on it too long because no. the whole that yeah, was completely different there. Engulfed in fire, <laughs> it would not have been a good thing. Uh, but you're right. Uh, sometimes the best place to be is on that airplane. Um, all right. And, and I don't know if most people know this. I mean, we may have talked about it in the past a long time ago, but jet fuel is not overly flammable. It takes a lot of uh, combustion to get jet fuel to burn, unlike gasoline. You know, you can take a lit match or a lighter or whatever else and stick it into jet fuel, and it will not light fire. So it takes, oh, yeah. takes a lot. So Yeah, people see movies of, of some bloke with a cigarette, and he throws it into the jet fuel and off it burns. It will not do that. It'll just put the fag out. So, you know, oh, what? Guys, 
A the what? fag, the cigarette. Okay. It's, you get some American steady people on, that may not know that. Steady term. on. Let's, let's not go diverted from the subject here. It'll put your cigarette out rather than set light to the fuel. No, it's just a low-grade paraffin. You know, it's not even – It's it, 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 when you aerosol it and you blow a tank up and, and aerosol those droplets around, then it will create a fireball. But just as a pool of liquid on the ground, no, it's quite hard to ignite. And that's and that's thing that's the thing that most people don't realize. They see fire out there, they're thinking, you know, movies, ba boom, you know, that that wing is probably not is the engine will burn for a very long time, the wing will burn uh for, for a very, very very long time before the, the airplane's gonna actually go kaboom if it's you know landed in one piece, like it did here in Atlanta. Good points made by all. All right, moving on, uh D. An update on that plane crash in Saskatchewan. Um, let's see, it was a Westwind Aviation, I believe it was an ATR. Where is that in the article? Um, yeah, it doesn't really even say here in this article. But uh, ATR is French. Uh, well, but the the airline was Canadian. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, I believe it was an ATR. Um, they said that, uh, the, the, if you'll... Remember, the uh, airplane crashed shortly after takeoff from a Saskatchewan um, airport, Fond du Lac, and that was in December of uh, last year. Nine people were seriously injured, and one 19-year-old man later died in the hospital. The Transportation Safety Board of Canada said in an update on Monday, the investigation is still ongoing, but it said investigators have determined that the plane arrived at the airport around 5.25 p.m. after encountering icing conditions. The anti-icing and de-icing systems were activated, said the update. When the de-icing and anti-icing systems were turned off, residual... Uh, where was I? I shouldn't have looked Sorry. at Sorry. <laughs> it's like squirrel. <laughs> residual ice remained on portions of the aircraft. The plane stayed at Fond du Lac Airport to board new passengers and cargo, but it was not de-iced before taking off again. Investigators are trying to determine why the plane was not de-iced and whether there was adequate equipment at the airport. Now, the update said that Westwind Aviation had some de-icing equipment in the terminal, including two ladders, a handheld spray bottle with electric blanket and wand, and a container of de-icing fluid. Now, this is. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude. No, but no. Like, that, if that was like a city in, let's say, South Florida or even you Middle can Florida, expect that to maybe be their the extent of their de-icing equipment. Yeah, yeah but we're talking Saskatchewan, Canada, Canada. in December. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. I could just imagine the first officer up there with the ladder and his handheld spray bottle going. <laughs> <laughs> And then putting like the, the warming blanket down on yep, top, just yep, yep, yep. let it all melt away. The, I can hear the conversation in the cockpit. So should I get the little spray bottle out and the ladders? And why bother? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. That's not going to help. Let's just go for I, it. I reckon the electric blanket was to wrap the first officer up in so he could stand <laughs> on the warm. wing and yeah, keep him warm. But no, it's, it's pitiful, quite honestly. Come on, guys, get with it. Well, you know, you'll remember that in the story that we were, when we, when this happened, shortly after the incident occurred, the TSB of Canada shut down the airline. Yeah. Basically said, because we're concerned about some of their safety practices. Yeah. I don't know what the date was yeah. on this article, but I think their operations are still suspended. Yeah. I'm not sure what, let's see if I have a date on this or not. Um, 
I mean, of course, there'll be some no. people that will say, well, if it landed safely with the ice in the wing, why can't it take off safely? And That's a good question. Why is that, that Nick? That is a good question. Well, the fact <laughs> is that when you take off, you're usually much heavier and your stall speed is uh, higher. What's more, you're going to be rotating the aircraft, assuming the wing uh, at a speed that assumes the wing is clean and the aircraft will be able to fly at the speed you're asking it to fly at. Now, with with the wing not clean, that is no, all those numbers, all those climb speeds, the stall speeds are all invalid. You might have been safe to land, and we would normally, uh, at a factory, if you've got ice on the uh, aircraft, uh, to land a little bit faster to make sure you're not close to your uh, stall speed, uh, just in case there's ice on. But once you've discovered it there, uh, or know it's there, you've got to clean the airplane because all of your performance for takeoff is assuming a perfectly pristine, clean wing. Well, and, and let's not forget that you know any type of ice causes the uh, airflow to be separated from the wing, so it may even be even with a faster aircraft. And I'm looking through. If this is turboprop, it's probably get boots on it as well instead of a hot wing, so uh, which can also be a problem in itself. But and uh, the surface temperature that day, I don't, you know, I can understand why they thought that they wouldn't need to worry about de-icing was minus ten Celsius. Yeah, and and, and it, what's crazy to me it's is, a warm is day that they're yeah, Canada actually in the winter. it was a warm day. <laughs> Shirt sleeves. Uh, you know, it's it's winter time up in Canada, and they're they're pretty pretty swift about knowing what to do in Canada. So I, I don't get this one. Maybe they're just in a hurry to go home. And finally, uh, the last thing in the news folder, Uber for Planes Amendment in the FAA bill. This is from uh, Plane and Pilot magazine. Uh, Uber for Planes. Now, we've talked about this kind of concept before on the show. And, in fact, there were co- some companies out there that were actually doing this sort of thing and were shut down. Right. And apparently, I don't know why they've changed their mind, but uh, uh, basically... In the FAA reauthorization bill currently speeding its way through Congress, a little notice provision that would change the charter game completely was included. Uh, the rider the rider to the bill would allow pilots to advertise for cost sharing rides on any media they so desire. And a couple of years ago, the FAA nixed, you know, here we go, uh, FAA nixed the idea of advertising sh- such rides online while okaying the practice when done on actual physical bulletin boards, though the reasoning behind that stand is unclear to anyone but the FAA who hasn't offered a justification for the ruling. So it looks like now they are open to this idea. And uh, apparently this, uh, there are several companies already out there that are going to take advantage of this and will will uh, soon take off, not to use a pun. Now, here's my take on this. You've got guys who don't have a commercial license there, private pilots. They don't have a set standard of training. They have, they've passed one portion of, uh, you know, a, um, a whole series of licenses you can do which come up all the way up to the air transport pilot's license. They're at their first stage. Um, you don't know the standard of uh, maintenance of the aircraft. It only has to pass the most basic of levels, uh, um, which is suitable for GA, but not the same as you would if you were a commercial f- passenger um, carrying airline. Now, the other thing is that I suspect a bit like Uber, each of these pilots will be like self-employed. He'll be looking after his own thing. He'll be responsible Independent for... Independent contractors. Exactly. So what happens when the first of these blokes actually piles in uh, and injures or kills someone? 
Now, it doesn't matter really what the case is. When you take uh, an airline that has a problem like this and the court cases that, that are involved afterwards, they're a huge cost to an airline. And they can usually, they're usually big enough to absorb all that cost, all the legal costs of the of the lawyers and possible payouts that they may have to give. Uh, this will now rest on the shoulders of a PPL holder, you know, an individual pilot, and he could be or she could be sued, um, and possibly rightly if they haven't maintained their aircraft quite to the right standards or they hadn't made allowance for all the weather factors and things that we would normally be covered by our airline. So uh, this may well go ahead, but I bet your bottom dollar, uh, the first couple of crashes and the first few pilots who realize that they are now, you know, completely penniless because there are multi-million dollar court cases against them that'll soon cause the number of volunteers that are willing to do this to dry up completely you know it, back when i was doing my commercial um, certificate uh there's a lot of um information and, and testing and questioning that goes into okay well once you have the certificate what what can you what can you do and what can't you do with your commercial certificate to earn money? And one of the things that you definitely cannot do is to basically operate as an airline. So you can't be, um, you can't be like a part 135 company. You can't do all of that things. You can, you can work for a company where you're doing like skydiving, uh, operations, or you can do, um, sightseeing tours. You can do banner towing, banner towing. You can, there's all kinds of things you can do, but you're basically not allowed to advertise that you're going to take someone from point A to point B. So, um, and for all of the reasons that Nick just said, and that's for folks with commercial certificates. So not even just In this case, it's, it's not, um, it's not a for-profit kind of thing. It's just a kind of off. Well, okay. I no, know. I, I mean, they're the way they're talking about it in the article, to and split expenses I, didn't, I didn't read the, the rider, but it allows them to take more than, because any private pilot can do that. Any private pilot, if you're going to have passengers with you, you can ask for them to pay oh. their basically pro rata share okay. of costs. But it can't be more than half. So basically. I didn't realize that. Um, I, I thought it was just to share their pro rata share. They for... can help you offset, you know, the cost of gas or things like mm -hmm. that. Um, but you can't charge someone to fly with you, basically. Okay. So this sounds like they're changing that provision to be more like the the ride sharing that happens with automobiles. And I wonder what kind of, um, you know, legal. Um, well, everything that Nick just said, you know, I think I yeah. think any smart um, private pilot uh, or pilot who is not employed by a carrier, whether it's a charter 135 operation or airline, um, would not be undertaking these types of um, businesses for themselves. Yeah, because just because the the legal risk, I think, is very high. I wonder how many of the I wonder how many of these private pilots though will realize that will will realize they're shouldering a legal risk that could ruin them for their entire lives. Yeah, well, it's it's a huge risk. I mean, as a flight instructor, anytime I put my name in somebody's logbook, I'm at I'm held liable for for the rest of my you know rest of my life. I mean, it's it's a serious uh, it's a serious legal issue. I think here, I I don't really necessarily agree with the FAA on this one. Uh, I think that uh, private pilots should not be carrying people, and it's really hard to 
say whether you know the amount of money that you're spending well you, you how if somebody gives you cash and you say it cost me two hundred dollars and they give you two hundred dollars well technically you're profiting from this so it'd be a real difficult thing to prove but yet uh i i really am wholly against private pilots ever carrying anybody because you know the way i look at a a, a ticket um well I shouldn't say carrying anybody, anybody for any type of compensation. I understand splitting costs. Um, that's, you know, you. Well, it's, it's one thing for someone to say, hey, yeah, I'd like to go for a flight with you if you're going flying and your friends, your acquaintances, you, you already have that relationship established. But if you're allowing, you know, if you're bringing someone in who's paying you to do that and you don't know who they are and any little thing happens, then you're definitely on the hook for, for all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So. Absolutely. And you, you can't carry insurance that's going to cover you in a commercial operations private pilot. Correct. Yeah. So I, I certainly don't think that uh, it's a wise idea. Uh, I don't know why they would ever do something like this because a private pilot just simply can't do this legally. Um, personally, well, they're, they're doing it. They're what? trying to make it legal. I mean, I'm just They're trying doing to think it of in the, the worst. UK, I think, and uh, in Europe, uh, they have something called Wingly. Uh, yeah, I don't know a lot about that, but I, I can't see that they would uh, insure their pilots for them. So I would suggest they may well suffer the same consequences if they're not careful. I mean, I'm just putting my sit mind in the situation the worst possible case you've got a a guy who's trying to work up his hours and uh, he takes someone off to go fly from a to b and crashes and dies and the his passenger dies and the family of the passenger now sues the estate of the pilot so now you've got a guy who is dead his wife is just being widowed they might have kids and a house but now their estate everything they own i don't know what the legal situation in the states but they might now be forfeit because uh of the legal consequences of the what trip that pilot took i just can't imagine how awful that would be for the wife of this and family of this poor pilot um who are trying to deal with the fact that they've lost the breadwinner and they're facing this appalling legal case as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it. it <laughs> the bottom line is get lo- the lawyers that are writing these laws. So uh, you know, the FAA. It's just it it's 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 sad to see that they're actually thinking about doing this because, you know, just as you mentioned, Nick, there there is very little I you know oversight. There's you know, certain parameters in which you have to maintain your aircraft 100-hour inspection if you're, you know, if you're wet leasing the airplane. But, uh, you know, the, the only other thing you have to do is do an annual if you own the airplane yourself. And in certain circumstances, you can do the annual inspection yourself and have an inspector sign off on the work on, on certain equipment. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of what-ifs here. Um, you know, there's a reason why we have part 131, part, you know, part, uh, you know, 121 now, uh, uh, 117, you know, rest rules, but still 121 carriers. Um, it, it, there's a reason it's because there's heavy oversight, there's heavy testing, there's heavy training all involved. And most of the pilot, private pilots that I've ever known, a lot of them don't have an instrument certificate, so they don't know how to operate in an instrument environment. Well, what happens if the weather goes down, get trapped in, in a situation like a JFK situation, you know, uh, JFK Jr., excuse me. 
you know, that just flying out over the water and have no freaking clue how to use your instruments. I mean, that's, there's a lot of, lot of openings here that I think it just, this, this is not a wise choice or an avenue. I think they should be going down. So is I guess safe to say that uh, it does not receive the APG stamp of approval? No. no Negatory. Yeah. yeah. Four thumbs down. All right. Well, good discussion. Uh, we'll see how, how this goes and if any, uh, well, it will be, I think it will happen. If they authorize it, then there are going to be companies just like Wingley um, over the pond, you know, operating. And I'm sure there are going to be, you know, several here in the U.S. doing it. And it'll be interesting to see what happens when this is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, happens like a, a, an incident occurs Yeah. here. So there's other provisions in this uh, FAA reauthorization bill that are um, controversial, I should say, as well, at are least they? from the general uh, now, one of those, aviation perspective. I, I saw something uh, urgently tweeted by several different uh, sources saying that, hey, you thought the privatization That's thing what was it is. over? They, they kind of attached it onto the end but of But didn't it they say it's okay now that, it, that um, don't worry, false alarm, um, it, it's dead? Uh, I've no? seen so many conflicting things, oh, I don't know okay. for certain, so... Yeah, someone I guess it depends more, on who's uh, tweeting it, right? Yeah, someone may have more up-to-date information than I do, but... Hmm. Well, the uh, the story, conti- the saga continues. All right, with that, uh, let's go ahead and get to the best part of the show, which, of course, as you all know, is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start off with uh, Matt from Oz. Thought I'd send in some feedback on the great job everybody does with the podcast, both heard and in the background. Hmm. Liz? Oh, yes. Thank you. I was just didn't really catch that. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of hard work. Liz, by the way, if I forget again to acknowledge her at the end of the show, is a, a You'll get big a good slapping and, from Steph is what you'll get. <laughs> Yeah, I know. She's sitting right next to me, so I have to be very careful. Slap. But uh, anyway, yeah, again, to mention that Liz has been uh, working as our producer now for, I don't know, a few episodes now, and uh, really has taken a big load off, uh, especially my shoulders. So thank you very much, Liz, for that. Yeah, she's so, doing a great And thank job. you for uh, Matt from Oz for acknowledging that. So Yeah, much anyway, better than goes, Jeff did. <laughs> yes. Oh, by the way, if uh, for some reason you're sending in feedback and it's not getting played on the show, can't blame me anymore. It's it's all Liz. Yeah, no, Liz is a hard taskmaster, and she's wow. got she got the editor's so, pen. Not only does he forget to mention her, he then throws her under the bus. <laughs> exactly. Wow. I'll drink to that. Poor Liz. Here's to Liz. Why do I feel like Liz is going to be turning in her resignation to me here momentarily? <laughs> Anywho. You are very much appreciated, Liz, especially by Matt in Oz. I really enjoy listening to the varying points of view and career paths everyone has taken on the way to where they are now. I've been listening since episode 220 when I discovered the podcast while on a holiday driving around Central Australia. While I haven't quite found the time to venture too far into the back catalog of episodes, I suspect I may have contracted the APG syndrome as a bit over 12 months ago at age 32, I quit a well-paid job and I moved 700 kilometers to start a part-time commercial pilots course. Could this be the worst symptom of the syndrome? And I, you know, 
first of all, we have to uh, play this, of course. No, that's Ray! right. I, 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 hoping that it was going to be the APG syndrome, <laughs> but it's not. Uh, uh, yeah, it's right there. Thank you. Uh-huh. Wish you were always here. APG syndrome. APG syndrome. Now, ah! Matt, I don't know if what you're describing is actually the worst case of APG syndrome because I I think that there are so many awful things involved with it that uh, it's really hard to you know rank order them. Mm-hmm. I mean, quitting your job and pretty getting into aviation though because of APG syndrome that's that's close. By the way, do we have a, any kind of a legal disclaimer at all uh, for people actually taking our advice and catching the syndrome yeah, and thank then the Lord for leaving Hillel. their jobs? And uh, no, yeah, H- Hillel, he's got an overall. Oh, right, yeah, he's end. good. He's good on that. Oh. You can't touch us. Not our fault. Yeah, <laughs> don't don't tempt them, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought okay. moving seven hundred kilometers as well. That sounds like a yeah. long way. Yeah. Wow. So anyway, he. Conti- I don't know how far that is, though. My brain doesn't work. kilometers. Work in what is that in miles? Like three hundred and fifty. I know that a marathon is forty-two kilometers. That's, that's the only reference I have. So that's about maybe a little bit more than one and a half times. Uh, so yeah, I think you're probably close. Whoever said five hundred. Four hundred and thirty-four point nine six miles. She says. Thank you. Awesome. What scares me, he said he's doing a, a part-time commercial. Well, if he's yeah. quit his job and, and it's moved that far, why not full-time commercial? Maybe the money. It's expensive. Yeah, true. Anyway, he continues, I've recently received my Recreational Pilot Certificate, RPC, light sports equivalent of an RPL, and have already started flying NAVs and working towards my PPL with the aim to have my CPL by mid-next year. So, I owe APG a big thanks for refueling the passion and desire I've always had and providing the final push to get started. I also hold the APG responsible, legally and financially, for any missteps. Of, no, wait a minute, he didn't put that idea. <laughs> How big's the coffee Jeff, fund? Jeff is just worried about the <laughs> legal ramifications of everything on the show today. Yes, I am. I, I'm, I'm concerned about many things about the show today. <laughs> anyway, as a final note, I'm sure much to Nick's disgust, I have to plant my foot in the Boeing camp. Oh, Ooh. I'd love to but, plant my foot in, the, in a <laughs> Boeing. That would be great. In fact, I'll put both feet there. But only begrudgingly, after they merged with McDonnell Douglas, in my eyes, can't beat the old Dakota, Skytrain, Skyhawk, Phantom, and Hornet. Woo-wee. Yeah, so he's trying to, to gain back yeah, some of you. Yeah, it hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep up the good work, and may the winds always be favorable, and the rec- record button pushed on the first attempt. Ooh, <laughs> Thank that's you. That's a good one. Wow. Ow. Ow. He listened to the last show. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> that's he, a uh, neat-looking airplane that he uh, flew solo, isn't that nice? Yeah, he included a picture of, um, what is that, a, a Dakota? It's a sperm. It's a arrow. A what? A who? A sperm. <laughs> it's a sperm it's a with wings. Bat. So, let's see. <laughs> no, I, I prefer semen. <laughs> there you go. That's what it is. No, he tells us. He said it's a Aeropract. Oh, that's right. A22 Fox. A22 Fox Bat. 
A sperm. Doesn't look like a fox bat, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not the fox bat that you were thinking about. <sighs> Matt, sorry for just butchering your feedback, but we do appreciate it. And it's very good, good luck to you. Uh, ah, yeah, yeah, damn good luck to you, mate, because you've made a big jump, and uh, yes. I'm sure you'll find solid ground to land on. So good luck with all that. And yeah. uh, since you've put your feet, several of them, in the Boeing camp, I would love to hear your comments after you listen to Plain Tales today. Okay. Moving on, as they say, uh, Richard writes. Um, well, why don't you do this one, Steph? Uh, this is from Richard. I think uh, there's one of them's a photo. Are you able to um, share this photo? Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess I could. Well, go back up and I'll read it and then we can see. Okay. Yeah. So from Richard, he says, uh, Jeff Moonlighting and Nick's response. Um, so he says, I guess writing this to Nick, says, I'm not implying anything, but is that Jeff sat there in the photo? And it's a photo which is part of a BBC article that talks about uh, federal flight deck officers and the airline pilots who are trained to shoot hijackers. And once we get this photo up, you'll understand why he thinks that perhaps Jeff has been doing a bit of moonlighting in his spare time. I see the resemblance. And if you're from, listening, go ahead. if you're listening to the audio version, please go to the show notes to take a look at this. Yeah, it'll definitely be in the show notes. But uh, you know what? I'm not going to be able to do that because it's got to be on that machine ah, okay. over there. So never mind. Well, anyway, make sure you take a look. at Everybody, just photo. listen up. If if it's not Jeff, it's Ron Jeremy with gray hair. <laughs> I was going to say, from the head up, it resembles Jeff from the head down. Nothing like it's Jeff. Jeff after he's been he's, going this, to the gym thing, for like yeah, this model is, two years. This person is even grasping his essentials. Just to make <laughs> Protect essential. <laughs> well, it's a very threatening situation going on there. There's a guy exactly next to him right. with a... Yeah, uh, weapon. It's the uh, federal they're, flight deck officers uh, uh, training program. They're two motorcycle riders having a fight, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's really hard to describe. But uh, the uh, the dummy, and a lot of people have called me worse, uh, sitting well, in the uh, passenger Steph on seat on the other side, wearing the green dress. <laughs> oh yes, I yeah. see Steph on the other side as well. I hadn't realized there she is. Wow. <laughs> It's so nothing. Steph and I are trying you to make some nothing. extra money. You don't see your head; you just see from the the shoulders that's a, down. From, yeah, from about yeah, here down. Good spot there, Dana. That looks exactly like Steph. Yeah, I think I so. Think we've spent enough time Terrible on this. Clothing on that time to move on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just check the show notes, and you'll see the picture, and yeah, you'll see what we're talking about. All right, Sam writes a uh, question for Dana. I have a question and a response to Chuck's question about glider ratings in episode 316. Uh, again, this is Sam. First, Dana, when you became or when you become a captain, does your seniority reset so you become the least senior captain on your fleet, or is your seniority purely based on when you joined the airline? Well, that's a very easy answer. Uh, Sam, uh, the, uh, the bottom line is, is you never lose, per se, your seniority when you get hired. Uh, that always stays the same relative uh, to how many people ahead of you uh, leave or are uh, no longer with the company, either retirement or other ways. So that's the only way you can necessarily move up. When I move over to the left seat, my company relative seniority will be exactly where I fall in the seniority list as a new captain. So I don't necessarily lose any seniority other than now I'm more junior because it's a more senior uh, position. So, 
And we have to stress that that's Acme Airlines. Maybe it's different at some other carriers, especially if they're more of a a, a salary based kind of a system or a combination of seniority and salary. How about uh, at your airline, Nick? Is that true? If you if you become a new captain on a new piece of equipment, um, do you keep your relative uh, system seniority, or do you uh, end up being right at the bottom? You keep the same number that you join the company with, basically. Uh, but, of course, you're in a different bidding system because you're obviously not bidding as a first officer anymore. You're bidding as a captain. So although you've got the same seniority number, um, you will inevitably be close to the bottom of the captain's uh, bidding system. However, if there was a captain that, say, did a captain's course well after you, and when he got promoted, he would pop up above you on the system. You see what I mean? So uh, say you're 200. If he was hired before you. Yeah, exactly right. But he, okay. he did his captain's course later. When he eventually got to be a captain, he'd, a, he'd be above you on the seniority. So it's it's an absolute number from when you joined the company. So okay. it's the same, essentially. Yeah, yeah, sounds like the same. Yeah, sounds. But that's not necessarily true. Some places uh, like the Middle Eastern carriers or I think Cathay maybe. Um, where don't quote me on that, but I, I do know for Middle Eastern, it's not necessarily date that you're hired as much as your you know recommendation for upgrade, and beyond that, uh, you know it's not a seniority based system; it's a internally based uh, um, recommendation system, more, and, and maybe more merit based than seniority based. Yeah, that would be a fair statement, I think. Okay. All right. Secondly, uh, in response to Chuck, good luck with your glider rating. I'm going towards what I think is the UK equivalent and passed my theory and oral exams a couple of weeks ago. I've just got to get some more solo time under my belt before progressing onto the skills tests. From speaking to our chief pilot or chief flying instructor at the club, the main difference from going solo to the glider pilot's license standard is essentially finesse and more testing of your decision making. You should be able to fly all maneuvers with accuracy, not just safely like before your first solo. And you should also be confident in taking in all the information available to you and using this to make decisions about your flying. I hope this helps. Good advice. Good answer. Yeah. Nick, I fly gliders in Somerset. So if you ever want to get back into it, then give me a, give me a shout. We'd be more than happy to host you and have a huge variety of ex-military members at the club and our aircraft fit tall pilots. Sam says he's six foot six. Wow, he is tall. And thank you very much indeed for the invitation, Sam. It's a bit of a stretch for me to get all the way down to Somerset, particularly since I have Lasham, which is another extremely good uh, gliding center only a few miles north of me so that's brilliant of you to uh, mention that and i'd love to meet you down there perhaps one day i do holiday down there sometimes um but uh, i probably won't be uh, uh, becoming a member down there anytime soon all right well thank you sam for the uh, question and the advice and now let's uh play an installment we haven't had one of these in a while uh captain steve horn uh, does these wonderful productions uh, called how i got here this one episode 11 or installment 11 so take it away hi my name is robert i am a captain at acme jr on the crj series aircraft and this is how i got here 
So straight out of high school, I decided to enlist in the Navy. My parents were getting divorced and uh, I wanted to get out of that situation, but also wanted to see the world and earn money for college. So I felt the Navy was the best way to do that. I enlisted in 1997 and wound up being an operations specialist. It's a fancy name for a radar operator. We tracked other ships uh, and God we trust, all others we track. But after my first year in the Navy, I realized that this uh, just was not for me. Um, I definitely knew that I was only going to do one enlistment. That being said, the Navy really gave me some great leadership skills that uh, I did not have before. One of my craziest memories from the Navy and also most memorable and just awesome (laughs) was the damage control trainer in which they put you in a, a mock damaged ship with water spewing out of pipes and holes in the mock ship and the compartment that you're in is literally flooding and so you're trying to plug these holes and shore up simulated uh, broken beams and then the best part about it was the emergency egress through the flooded deck above you so you climb this ladder and you're climbing in the middle of this cascading waterfall of the flooded deck above you and the moment you hit the top deck you're instantly underwater and the guys above you grab you by your shoulders and yank you through it and that brief second of in a waterfall to i'm underwater to i'm back breathing normally again is just insane (laughs) it was really cool came out of the Navy, uh, started college in 2001. I wasn't really sure uh, what I wanted to major in, but uh, my second semester of college, uh, September 11th happened. That's when I knew I still wanted to help people, serve people, and I didn't want to re-enlist in the Navy because I didn't want to be placed uh, wherever the government would have me, so I decided to go into uh, law enforcement and major in criminal justice. After four years, uh, I had uh, met my wife and we actually got married my last semester of college and I was working for a juvenile facility where they could go to get their GED and driver's license and learn a job trade. My, my wife would see how I was when I'd come home and it, it wasn't the job itself, it was the, it was the politics and she said, you know, you're, you're really not happy doing this, you need to find something that really makes you happy. And while I loved all the the rules and the structure of the criminal justice system, I I knew she was right. It was really something that uh, whatever my career was going to be, I I needed to be really happy with what I was doing, just really enjoy it. And turns out criminal justice wasn't that for me. And so fast forward to Christmas dinner in 2006 and I casually look over at my dad and I say, hey, I know I don't really want to be a cop anymore, but I've been so focused on it for the past four years. That's all I can think about. What do you think I'd be good at? And he just kind of casually says, you know, I always thought you had the right mentality to be an airline pilot. And it was like this light bulb went off. I was like, why didn't I think of that before? It just sounded so perfect. I love being in the air. I love the thought of flying a plane, love airports, people watching, just everything sounded right. So I went home that night, started researching flight schools and found ATP. That sounded like the the fastest way to get there. And so took my first uh, ground school lesson in July of 2007. And by December 30th of 2007, I had my CFI, I, and MEI uh, on my way to becoming a flight instructor. Tales of a flight instructor. We've all got them. Uh, So my very first job as a flight instructor was not performing the duties of a flight instructor. My my boss wanted me to fly a Belanca Viking up to the owner and pick him up uh, from Mesquite and fly him out to Midland. Uh, I was totally paranoid about this because I hadn't flown it uh, except for a couple of familiarization flights. 
when we were on a five mile final, uh, the, the engine quits. I'm like, oh crap. So switch over to the, uh, to the right tank because that was the one that still had fuel on it. And uh, flaps up, gear up, mixture prop for throttle for forward, uh, fuel pump on, and nothing happens. My, my heart sinks. I'm like, th th this can't be happening. This isn't real. When I finally wrap my mind around the fact that this is in fact happening and you will be landing whether you control it or not, um, that's when I you know, got to step up and, all right, I'm declaring emergency. Uh, we're about five miles south of the field and we land in a uh, field of mesquite trees. And uh, for anybody who knows Blanca Viking, it's got uh, fabric and wood wings. So mesquite trees were not very forgiving and sh just shredded the wings uh, after we landed. Um, we hit a barbed wire fence is what uh, what stopped us uh, finally and uh, heart was racing uh, yeah that was a crazy crazy adventure had a had a 709 to recheck and all that FAA said yeah you did everything right uh, and the examiner pulls out a pen and just throws it on the floor and says yep that's about the glide ratio of a Blanca Viking so you did everything right good job all your uh, commercial privileges are uh, no longer suspended so uh, I left that company, found a much more reputable company. And, uh, you know, we've all got crazy stories, you know, from landing a 152 and a 27 knot crosswind, uh, got my first kidney stone in the air with a student, you know, getting chased by thunderstorms during touch and goes and going to another airport. Uh, you know, we've all got those stories. So by this point, uh, we had had our uh, second child and, you know, flight instructing doesn't really pay the bills. And a buddy of mine pulls me aside and he says, hey, uh, I've got this job as a, as a pipeline pilot, but you need it more. And he literally pulls open his phone, calls up his would-be employer and says, hey, I can't promise you that I'm not going to jump ship in two or three months if the airlines call me. I've got a really good friend here, great pilot. Uh, I want you to talk to him. And he hands me the phone. And I'm like, what just happened here? And uh, I'm talking to this guy, Greg, and he says, uh, so I uh, hear you're interested in a uh, flying pipeline. And I said, yeah. And he says, when can you come in? And I said, when do you need me there? And so we interviewed a week later and another 10 days later, I was uh, starting training as a pipeline pilot. I was flying a 182 uh, for about two years. And then I eventually transitioned into a Vulcan Air. That's uh, an Italian made uh, twin engine fixed wing. Really interesting looking plane. It's got the uh, observer fishbowl on the front, so you've got the visibility of a helicopter, but uh, it's really, really hot in the summer. I'd go through a whole camelback in one leg. Uh, granted, you know, our legs were five to six hours, but pipeline was really fun. Had a lot of freedom. Uh, I know you're basically flying the exact same thing every time, but the weather's always different. You always got uh, traffic. You're always looking out for those uh, ag tractors. Um, people say we're crazy, but no, those, those guys are crazy going under power lines and all that stuff. But you're yanking and banking all day. You're, you've just got so much freedom and visibility and, and you know at the end of the day you can climb up to a thousand feet and actually get some cool air because you know flying in south texas in the summer is a great weight loss program so uh, uh left pipeline we uh we had our third kid and uh got a job flying for the acme cargo runners up in milwaukee moved the whole family up there and my ifr skills were not quite there because you know coming from pipeline you're flying vfr day only and cargo is obviously the exact opposite of that, uh, especially, especially in Milwaukee. Uh, so my FR skills weren't quite there. They said, why don't you sit in the right seat for a year and then uh, we'll move you over to the, to the left seat. Uh, they're flying Beach 99s. I said, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. So out of the eight, nine months I was there, uh, I flew a grand total of uh, 265 hours and the first 200 hours was within the first two to three months. I was on the on-call side and they just were not using me. They did not fly me. Not sure why, but 
it is what it is. There were several situations where I'd have a whole day at home uh, and they would call me at nine, 10 o'clock at night and say, hey, you're flying to Mexico City, repo part 91 to uh, Laredo. So I, I thought there was no way that this is safe. There's no way this is legal, even though their OPSPECs said uh, once you were assigned a trip, you were to have been considered on rest for the previous eight hours. Uh, that just didn't sound right to me. So <laughs> I just got a really bad taste in my mouth and thought if this is the rest of what my aviation career is going to look like, then I, I don't want any more of it. And I started looking for, uh, for a job just to get us back to Houston and uh, got a job with the Acme Armor Company, driving a truck and uh, carrying a lot of money and wearing a firearm and Kevlar all day. So I went out of the frying pan into the fire because that job was even worse. <laughs> so, you know, I'm working 16 hour days and my wife is like, Hey, uh, we never see you anymore. Uh, you need to get back up in the air because you're miserable doing this and flying makes you happy. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. So, uh, went on to one of those, uh, websites, uh, that uh, tells you all the starting pay and saw that the pay had jumped significantly. That's when I saw Acme Jr. and I was like, hey, I'm gonna apply there. The rest is history. What I've taken away from all my experiences and what I'd like to pass on is that, you know, no matter where you're starting from, if you have the desire, that's what really matters. Because from what the Navy taught me about persistence and structure, from studying criminal justice about the, the importance of laws, and even all the real world scenarios as a flight instructor, aviation is what makes me happy. And if there are other people out there that, you know, think, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm too old. I, I was 29 when I took my first flight lesson and it took me eight years to, to get to the airlines. Uh, that's longer than average, but I had a family to think about. So everybody's got their own uh, situations, but if you really want to make it happen, you can, there are ways, but find what makes you happy and, and go for it. That's, that's my advice. Captain Robert, and this is how I got here. Well, that was a boring story. That uh, I love his production. He he gets his guys who interviews to tell such fascinating stories. I take my hat off this lovely Blake. He's uh, he does such a good job. But Robert, um, talking about a not normal background. Yeah, non-traditional yeah, non -tr <laughs> uh, path to the airlines. I like that even after he was flying, then he went back to driving an armored truck for a while. That was my favorite part of the yeah. story. Yep. I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? Get to the place of the country you want to be in. So Yeah. Yeah, but it just shows what dodgy outfits there are out there and how easy it is to f fall in amongst thieves. Yeah. Well, finally he got with a reputable company so we're we're happy for robert and again steve man again yeah did yourself always a very very polished production and it really adds a lot to this show so oh, thank you i'm so glad he's chosen the apg to uh, send his show his um, bits to his things me too <laughs> that wasn't very very good was it <laughs> what do we yes thank you for sending your bits to us <laughs> wait a minute wait a minute i'm sorry minute. steve that was awful uh -huh. we redo that and what a beautiful clock it is <laughs> To be clear, I did not just say that just now in that context.
Um, <laughs> oh, yes, you were referring to roosters, apparently. Okay. <sighs> All right. Our good friend. <clears throat> George Nolly sent us some feedback. Uh, George is the uh, host of a, an amazing podcast as well, Ready for Takeoff. And uh, he says, episode 319 is another outstanding podcast. The discussion about aerotoxic syndrome really resonated with me in the Ready for Takeoff podcast, episode 108, 108. Uh, and he includes a link here for us, and that'll be in the show notes, because you definitely, if you, if you don't subscribe to the Ready for Takeoff podcast, please do. It's a well-done um, production. Uh, he says, I have some resources your listeners may want to consider bringing along before they fly, whether as a passenger or pilot, unless they're in a 787. Every time I hear about an airline pilot doing something really boneheaded, like the Air Canada pilot who almost landed on a crowded taxiway at San Francisco, I wonder if his or her mental uh, faculties were affected by a fume event. Keep up the great work and a big congratulations to Captain Dana. That's, again, George Nolly, uh, the host of Ready for Takeoff. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, George. Appreciate that. Um, soon. Yeah. Soon to be uh, all over. Aerotoxic syndrome is um, something that uh, seems to be occurring or showing up or we're paying more attention to it lately. And uh, the reason why he says, of course, that the 787 is not included in that is that uh, they don't use engine compressor bleed air to... Uh, pressurize and air condition the uh, cabin. So there's, uh, I guess there's probably still a way for toxicity to get in, but it's a much lower uh, probably just chance. Different mechanism altogether. Yeah. Now I have a question for you, Jeff. Uh, you're yeah. sitting there flying your mad dog along, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the cabin crew come up and go, uh, Captain Jeff, uh, you're gorgeous, but no, let's not talk about that now. Uh, one of the okay. app uh, passengers. Well, no, no, no. Go back to the first thing. <laughs> <laughs> one of the passengers has what George Nolly uh, suggested everyone has an Atmo tube, and it's indicating that the uh, there is uh, a significant uh, level of toxicity in the air in the aircraft. Now, my question to you is, what are you going to do? What is it that they have that shows the toxicity well, level of the it, uh, aircraft? You follow the link for that uh, George sent us, and it takes you to a yeah. commercial uh, um, piece of uh, tech that you can buy, which it looks about the size of your thumb. It's a little metal tube, and apparently it uh, sucks in the air around you, and it can give you a reading on uh, ozone, carbon dioxide, monoxide, temperature, humidity, off-gassing from interior material, bio-effluence, personal care products, allergens, infectious agents, cabin partial pressure of oxygen, alcohol, formaldehyde, de-icing fluid, blah, the list goes on. So the fact is that if you've got a passenger with one of these on board, uh, what are you going to do if they come up and say... uh, it's indicating that the air in this aircraft is toxic when you're in the middle of a flight. And I mean, I appreciate what George is doing here, but you put us in an impossible situation when you suggest that people start carrying these because one is a, as a captain, I'm going to answer the question for you, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to say, for goodness sakes, you're in a mad dog. What do you expect? I do have a question about that, but go, <laughs> yeah. go ahead. I've got this piece of kit here, which I bought off the internet and it tells me the air in the cabins, 
and not safe, so I diverted the airplane. Or alternatively, I listened to a passenger who has one of this, these who said that the air is toxic. So you it, having this sort of kit might be great, but it puts us as airline captains in an impossible situation. So here's my question, though. Is it better to know and to make that type of decision or to potentially not know and be affected by it? Well, I think if uh, you if you go by just the data from one of these, uh, you put yourself in the position of having to stand up and justify your actions. And the company will quite rightly say, all right, who um, produced this? What standard has it been made to? When was it last tested to prove it was accurate? And based on that, why did you decide to divert the aircraft when we have subsequently proved that the aircraft was fully serviceable? Now, Sure. It's the difference between, I think they call it type 1 and type 2 errors, correct? One is making a error based on... Um, I have to go back and look at this. I should really know it's statistical stuff, but um, making an error based on incorrect information or not making the error when you should, or not doing something because you should have, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, unless I see some evidence, uh, some effect from the supposed toxic situation, uh, I don't think you you can make a decision to divert or anything else. You're just going to have to look at it and go, well, that's interesting information, but I have no idea to, you know, if, if it's um, the veracity of it is, is trustworthy. That's exactly my point. That's exactly my point. So, I mean, it's a bit like having a personal breathalyzer. You might breathalyze yourself and go, oh, I'm fit to drive and five minutes later you're pulled in by a policeman who gives you an official breathalyzer and you're now not fit you've you've failed the breathalyzer you go well hang on a minute i've got this that said i'm okay well that doesn't mean jack nothing in a court of law or when the company looks at you and goes why did you waste thousands of dollars diverting this airplane and interrupting the journey of these hundreds of passengers uh you've you've got to have uh, equipment on the aircraft that is properly uh, maintained by the company that gives you this information you can't rely on something you just buy on the internet speaking of buying it on the internet at least here it's sold on amazon.com and i can have it delivered to my house tomorrow for 87 dollars and 82 cents I think well, it's going to be too late. Yeah. <laughs> huh? It's going to be a bit late. Yeah. Yeah, I know. leaving in about an hour. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. But <laughs> there will be more trips in the future. There you okay. go. Well, I, I think we should all get one just for fun and uh, see if it ever goes off. All right. What was the name of that? What's, what's the name that you found, Steph, there? I'm sorry? What's the name of the, the, the actual name of it? I'll order it and, and carry it with me. It's called an Atmo, it's called an Atmo tube. tube. A-T-M-O. Atmo tube. Atmo tube. Mm-hmm. Oops. We would say tube. You would say tube. Because we have a U in it. Tube. You guys have double O. T- t- is that how you say it? Tube. 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 Yeah. Because it has a U. Tube. Yeah. Tube. 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 And you say tube, like, which is two O's. T-double-O-B. Tube. So how do you say P-U-B? Pub. <laughs> If you add an E on the end, it becomes pube. <laughs> Sorry. Next question. That must be a hard one. Oh, we can go so many places. Oh, my word. Okay. Um, 
Thank moving you. On. Yes, moving, on. moving on. George, thank you very much for for adding to the conversation here. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think we're going to hear more and more about what, what's this. What's scary so. about this item, it says the first thing about this item, warning, choking hazard. <laughs> yeah, not for children under three years of age. Small parts. Yeah. You're just not supposed to stick it up your nose. Are you supposed to eat it? <laughs> Oh, my God. That's funny. Oh, boy. Hey, Richard sent us some feedback. Uh, question for Steph. And uh, you ready for that? Yep. All right. Here we go. Uh, Richard here. This is a question for Dr. Steph. I have had two DVT events, one in 2015, the last in October last year, probably related to short-term flights, not confirmed, is genetic. Um, mother had a DVT uh, factor five light questions are I'm a runner and I've started running the past few months and I get pins and needles in, in my left leg in the in the leg that DVD occurred and um, this is obviously a circulation issue there is long-term damage to those veins can you confirm that you know with that pins and needles which sets in predictably at around four kilometers is due to the DVT can you elaborate a little bit more on why uh, there are pins and needles. And thirdly, is my running career now capped at five to seven Ks and it's not going to improve, i.e. there will always be DVT. In the 2015 event, um, I had the same issue, but it got progressively better. I could run longer distances at the time, but I, I only I stopped running at that time at seven Ks. Um, would appreciate if you could, you could sort of expand on DVT and pins and needles and running and future prognosis um, much much appreciated thanks okay that was richard uh asking about dvt well first of all what's dvt so dvt is a deep vein thrombosis or deep venous thrombosis and it recurs occur uh, refers to blood clots that occur usually in the lower extremities in the deep veins um you know a common reason that people get them is um, from long airplane flights, they sit for a very long period of time, and uh, you know they may have some insufficiency of those those vessels, and it doesn't allow the blood to flow as freely as it as it normally would, and it can pool a little bit, and when the blood pools, it can start to coagulate and form blood clots. Um, certainly not a good thing if those blood clots then break off into little pieces. They can travel up into the lungs and block the blood flow through the lungs, and that can can be fatal in some cases. So. Definitely a serious condition, um, usually recognized by pain or swelling in the calf, um, particularly um, with moving the foot and ankle around. It'll cause pain in the calf. Um, and like I said, a lot of people notice it after they've been on a kind of the classic scenario is a long plane ride. Um, so he's asking a couple different things there. And Richard, you know, uh, well, I'll go into some of this, but I, I certainly think making sure that you have a good uh, evaluation by your local medical professional and perhaps by a specialist um, is not a bad idea, um, especially if it's a type of hereditary condition because there are hereditary problems that can lead to uh, blood clotting. And some of those things have treatment. So definitely make sure that you're getting that medical attention and nothing can replace a, a thorough physical examination as well for some of these problems, which I certainly can't provide over uh, or via podcast. So um Certainly a common question after patients have a DVT is how soon can I resume activity or be active or go running? Um, you know, the concern is that if part of that clot breaks off and it goes to the lungs, that can be 
very detrimental, but um, just going through some of the recent literature on it, um, looks like most patients really can kind of let their body be their guide. So it depends on how much pain, discomfort you're having when you're up and being physically active. Um, you know, the, the biggest risk is probably within the first couple of days, but could last up until four weeks. So again, that's where it's important to meet with your medical professional. Make sure you have all the appropriate diagnostic tests. Make sure you know what your risks are for potentially um, continuing to have or form blood clots, because that's important to know too. So you were talking about when you go out and run, you start to get pins and needles or pain after about, I think you said four kilometers or so. So, you know, when people start talking about having pain in their legs, that that comes on with being up, moving about, standing, walking. Um, we, talk, we call that claudication. But there's two different types of claudication symptoms. One can be from nerve problems. So if you have pinching of the nerves, especially in the lower back, which is what I deal with on a daily basis in my clinic, um, that can produce pins and needles, burning sensation, pain in the legs, predictably comes on when you stand up, walk, move around. But there's also a type of vascular claudication. Um, not as classic for causing some of the pins and needles and burning sensation. Pins and needles, you know, when people's, you know, if you sleep funny on your arm or something, you wake up and your hand is asleep and you can shake it out. A lot of people think that's a vascular issue. It's actually not. That's usually a, a nerve issue. You've compressed a nerve somewhere and the pins and needles you're experiencing is because the nerve was compressed. And when you release that compression, you start to get that sensation back again. Yeah, it's like not usually a pain. It's just like a numbness. Yeah, it's a num Well, it can be painful too. Okay. It can be yeah, it can be pain, numbness, tingling, um, vascular claudication. You know, if you had blood flow issues, and usually those are um, not always venous conditions. So not the return blood flow, but the arterial blood flow. So the outflow. Um, if you have blockage there, you can get pain and discomfort in the legs. Um, it's usually not described as pins and needles, though. So that's why I think getting um, you know, definitely having a thorough medical evaluation in your case would be important to determine what the source of that pins and needles sensation is for you, because there may be more than one thing going on. So unfortunately, I can't confirm that for you, but hopefully that information gives you some more um, uh, ability to make decisions going forward in terms of the, the medical care that you might need. That's a bummer if you're somebody that enjoys running and then experiences this First of all, I don't understand anybody that enjoys running, but uh, <laughs> me yeah, neither. I don't need <laughs> Those people are crazy. <laughs> they are. Um, but yeah, there, I mean, there's different tests that can be done to to differentiate between those two problems, um, and you may need specialists help to figure that out. Um, but certainly, the appropriate specialists uh, will be very familiar with their, you know, their field, and they'll know which direction to point you in, which test to actually order whether they need to be testing the, the blood flow and the circulation more closely, or we can actually do nerve testing to see if the nerves are functioning appropriately or if there's any sign of pinching or blocking of the nerves. Um, sometimes imaging testing is appropriate as well, both for nerve problems and for blood flow problems. Okay. Are you, are, are you up to uh, answering another question? Sure. Okay. Bring on the questions. All right. Alex writes, um, I can't tell you how much I enjoy your work. I call it that because I know how much effort and collaboration goes into producing something of your show's quality. Late in 2016, thank you very much, by the way, Alex. Late in 2016, I proposed to my girlfriend, now wife, and the next day we ventured out to Colorado to celebrate on the slopes. The next day I found out via telephone that I had been let go from my company with no severance. I'd worked there for eight years and was let go due to an impending Chapter 11 filing. Needless to say, 
We scrambled to figure things out. My fiancé stood by my side and followed me to northwest Alabama, sight unseen, where I found a wonderful job as a hospital IT director. She sat for the Alabama bar and passed two months later. As we drove back to Oklahoma City, our home state, to get married, she received a call with a job offer for a prestigious position with the federal government. After much deliberation during our honeymoon, we decided for her to accept the position. This meant living apart for a year beginning immediately after our wedding. I mention all this to say that your podcast has gotten me through a lot of long nights and runs. Like Dr. Steph, I continuously submit myself to marathon training for a reason I have yet to understand. I don't understand either. There you go. There's evidence that uh, these people are crazy. (laughs) Uh, I had been interested in flying for years, but never thought I'd actually fly a plane. I'd familiarized myself with the FARAIM, the uh, Federal Aviation Regulations and the Aeronautical Information Manual, and various private pilot manuals just because I was extremely interested in the process of of aviation. After looking around, I found a wonderful CFI and a cheap, inexpensive plane, and now have a whopping five hours I've loved every second and know that I will accumulate hundreds of more or that I will accumulate hundreds more. The aviation community has been wonderful. And through your podcast, I have found that there are friendly folks willing to answer questions from the lowliest GA pilot all the way up to airline captains. I do have a question request. This is most likely for Dr. Step, but can you please explain your methodology with respect to the rollout flare process? I, I've heard many different strategies, but none seem to resonate with me. I find myself rolling out perfectly, but things get rocky from there. I'm sure this will improve with time. If you ever find yourselves in the northwest Alabama Muscle Shoals area, please get in touch. I can also get to Birmingham, Nashville, and Huntsville within one to two hours if there's ever a meetup in these areas. I am now officially a Coffee Fund contributor. Yay! Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Doc, Captain's First Officer, thank you. Clear Skies, Alex. So um, he's wondering, I guess maybe he's addressing this mostly for you because you're our, you know. Well, I might even defer this a little bit to Dana because he's the one with the instructing experience. Um, So actually, I'm going to do that if you don't mind, Alex, and then I'll tell you what I do, but I would like to hear the instructor's perspective on this as well. Go for it, Seth, and I'll, I'll cue in. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. You take it. No, I think, you take it. I think it. she was deferring to you, Dana. I was deferring to Dana, but he just, he just clearly didn't want to answer that. So um, so first of all, I'll say that this is a lot of this is practice. Um, and with only five hours, that's not a lot of practice landing. Um, and there will likely be plenty more uh, time for that going forward. Um, just the way you were describing it, it sounds like, I'm not sure what you mean with respect to rollout flare, rollout perfectly, but things get rocky from there. Um, Maybe it means like the roundout. Yeah, I think I think that's what he's referring to. Yeah, um, and that's a little bit different on different aircraft. I'm not sure if he said what he's flying he did exactly. Not. Um, say. But there's a little bit of difference in technique I find between high wing and low wing aircraft. With uh, you know my first hundred hours or so we're in a 172 which is a high wing aircraft um you know and you, you basically you're you know coming down to that uh, glide path basically glide slope and um as you're getting closer and closer you're transitioning into that you know runway environment 
I found some of the most helpful things are actually to look down the length of the runway as you're getting closer. That kind of gives you a better sense of what your actual perspective is to the ground. Um, you know, as you begin that flare process, you know, there's, there's practice and repetition that goes into figuring out how far you want to begin that off the ground for your particular aircraft. Um, but basically then you're just going to keep kind of steady, constant light back pressure on the yoke, on the stick, side stick, whatever it is that you're using, uh, to control the aircraft. Um, and then as the main gear touchdown, you definitely want to make sure you're keeping that nose gear off of the ground. Um, but not so much back pressure that, you know, you have a significant nose up attitude. Um, but then you want to keep that back pressure for a little while too. You don't want to let the nose just come straight down onto the ground. And that's where looking forward, looking ahead can be really helpful for you as well. Excellent advice, Dr. Steph. Um, and I guess should probably talk about low wing as well, but for me, basically I apply essentially the same technique but I found that people who learn to fly in low-wing air, aircraft um, don't always do that exactly the same way. And, and that's that's a very important point that you make. There's a huge difference between a high-wing and a low-wing air, aircraft uh, in the pitch attitude, um, in ground effect. That uh, makes a big difference uh, in, in landing technique. And, and what I'm seeing here is that the he has it kind of backwards, the rollout flare process. It's really the flare, then the rollout um, the flare, it, 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 it's really a function of your ground effect. It's a function of your airspeed and it's a function of whether you're a high wing or a low wing airplane. So what I'm thinking is when he gets close to the ground, he has a tendency of rocking the wings because what's en ends up happening is your ailerons actually become slightly more effective as well as your elevator become slightly more effective once you get close to ground effect and depending on your speed as well. So um, if, if you, if you're carrying too much speed along with the ground effect, you can end up with a extended flare, uh, Alex, and what you, what you need to do is you need to focus. And I'm sure your instructor has told you this and, and, and Dr. Steph alluded to it. The, the bottom line is you need to focus down the runway. You kind of want to put the, the horizon of the, the nose right on the horizon down the runway and focus down the runway where, where a lot of people have a lot of problems in landing small, even big transport aircraft as well as you tend to focus right in front of the aircraft or, uh, you know, out of your peripheral, just the side of the aircraft trying to pick, really trying to pick up your depth perception so you know the important thing is is just to remember to slowly flare the aircraft back don't over rotate it don't under rotate it and that's really a, a fine area in which you're trying to 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 uh to to nail and it really makes a big difference on your airspeed your flap setting and also the type of aircraft you're flying so I wish I had that other piece. I'm assuming it's probably a 172 or a high wing aircraft. That's most aircraft that are used for training uh, these days. Continue to be a Cessna type product. Um, the uh, the the big thing is just be patient with it. Understand that you know you have to correct for crosswind, correct for that uh, the, the the tendency to sit there and float a little bit. And if you're floating down the runway, which is what I think what I'm reading here with the flare process, um, you know, find himself, he finds himself quote unquote rolling out perfectly, but things get rocky from there. I mean, the way he put it backwards, 
I think no. I think what he means, uh, he doesn't mean roll out. Roll out we think of as on yeah. the runway rolling out. He's talking about but the round out. Round out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so too. So it it it's it's just a matter of that's practice. It's just pra- there's no there's no set way of doing it other than focus down the runway and get a feel. And if if your instructor um, really wants to help you out, what they'll do is they'll do what's called slow flight. And this is very effective if you get, to, you know, you, you get up to altitude, you go to your maneuvering area, and you get used to flying the aircraft in a slow flight configuration. When I say slow flight, that means flying the aircraft with the flaps down, landing gear if it's retractable, which is more than likely not the case, the landing gear down, and you just sit there and you hold the airplane at the minimum control airspeed. You're not stalling the aircraft. But it's really simulating a landing. You're really just kind of getting used to flying the aircraft, not rolling it left or right, just holding the nose, holding the altitude, holding the airspeed. And if you get your flight instructor to get to work with you on that, and give, it will give you a much better feeling of how the aircraft is going to feel in a flare. Because what you want to do is when you're rounding the airplane out, you want to get your vertical speed to as, as low as it possibly can be i.e. you want to touch down, you know, one to 300 foot per minute descent rate the most. Ideally, right, you know, right as you roll out zero. Um, but, you know, the, the danger of that, like I had uh, just the other day in the airplane with Tony, I touched down too softly and the spoilers never came out. So that's, a, <laughs> that land, that ended up being a... You don't have to worry about that in yeah, most in, GA in aircraft, though, GA fortunately. Airplane, so. I was laughing about because <laughs> I ended up with two landings and I was making fun of, of Captain... Uh, Jeff, a couple weeks ago. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, so MCA, minimal control airspeed, slash slow flight, will really help you out with that. And focusing down towards the end of the runway uh, when you're in the flare, that will help you out as well. I I hope we answered your question, Alex. Um, But I I really think it all comes down to practice, too. Eventually, you're going to know what that sight picture is. You're going to understand it. You're going to understand how much, um, how quickly or slowly you need to begin that round out process flare process and it'll make more sense as time goes on well and, and the thing is i'm re- go ahead i was just reading back here and he has a whopping five hours uh, you know rome's not built in a day and i can assure you uh, you know one thing i'd really like to know is which type of aircraft you're flying and two five hours trying to learn to air- land an aircraft within five hours I would expect a little bit more than than five hours as far as you get more proficient with landing the aircraft. So don't put too much pressure on yourself is really what I'm trying to say. And Alex, once you get to the point where you make perfect landings, you'll make a perfect landing every single time for the rest of your flying career. Uh, Guaranteed. Absolutely. Bear witness to that. I've I've seen that. Jeff (laughs) is a perfect, he lands the aircraft perfectly. Even uh-huh. even have video footage so, proving it. <laughs> well, you know what? I think that uh, you know, what I like to say. Okay, Nick, uh, that's nice comment there. Um, the uh, when you know sometimes you'll just come in and you're thinking this is going to be really great, and then it it's not so great. You know, it's always those times. Whenever you're thinking that, that's yeah. when it's going to just. And I say to people, you know, you know, like those. Uh, if you're a baseball fan. Uh, the people out there that are the uh, the home run stars, you know, the home run hitters. Well, guess what? They may be leading the league in home runs, but uh, take a look at all their stats. Occasionally, they'll strike out. And uh, so that's kind of the way it is with landing an airplane. Sometimes you'll hit the home run and 
sometimes you'll strike out and it's usually striking out more than hitting home runs for most of us. So, yeah. But you're, you know, you said you have a good instructor. You're going to learn to do safe landings and that's what counts in the end. So, you know, and, and there are really three different ways of landing an airplane. One, you can use the airplane again, which is always a bonus. Two, might be able to use the airplane again with a little bit of work. And three, the last one you don't want to, which is, you know, never be able to use the aircraft again. So as long as you can walk away from the aircraft, now, I th- I, that's a great landing. Now, a good landing, yeah, good landing is if you can walk away from the uh, aircraft. A great landing is if you can walk away from the aircraft and use mm-hmm. it again. Exactly. There you go. Uh, let's see. I think it's time now for this week's installment of the fabulous Plane Tales. So take it away, old pilot. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, LL 1862 and the Bell Mamiya. It was before the Second World War when the concept of a utopian development won over the town planners for the city of Amsterdam. It wasn't until the 60s, however, that the dream of an idyllic garden city became a reality, and with the promise of wide boulevards, generous open spaces, plentiful communal services, the Belmamia project was started. The developers imagined that well-urbanized humans would love their modern concept of living in spacious mid-rise apartments full of natural light, in living zones designed for their needs. However, instead of becoming a city for the future, the Belmamia became one of the most problematic neighbourhoods in Europe. When the elevated roadways, shopping areas, restaurants, cafes and promised fast metro links eventually appeared, it was all too late. The middle-class, middle-income earners who should have flocked to these modernist apartments stayed away. The few that did buy into the dream found that the many unoccupied spaces were taken over by squatters and the homeless. It became a place to dump Sudanami immigrants, legal or otherwise. The crime levels soared and built with such confidence and dreams, it fell into neglect a place where nobody who had a choice would want to live. There were 13,000 apartments, 31 parking garages, 68 miles of corridors, hundreds of elevators, and slowly it filled, but mainly with thousands of newly arrived citizens who came from other countries. It was a project that had disappeared into the shadows, an area of criminality, drug abuse, with a nearly 90% unemployment rate, and on top of the neglect and deprivation, a disaster was about to fall onto the Belmamia from the sky. It was the evening of the 4th of October 1992, and at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, Captain Yithax Fuchs, his first officer and flight engineer, were waiting to pick up their LL-747-200 cargo aircraft, which was inbound from New York. Once it had been refueled, they were taking it on to Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. There were no significant snags, and with the transit checks complete, the aircraft taxied out for a 1720 Zulu slot. 
they had nearly 115 metric tons of cargo, 72 tons of fuel, and a young lady who was flying with them as a passenger so that she could get to Tel Aviv in time for her marriage. After an hour's delay, flight 1862 lined up on runway 01 left, now known as 36 Centre. It was the first officer's leg, so he advanced the throttles and they began the take-off roll. At 32, the first officer was the youngest of the crew members. The flight engineer was 61 and the captain, an ex-Israeli Air Force fast jet pilot, was 59. So this was an experienced and capable crew. Their journey started well and they climbed out on the Pampas departure, turning right as they cleaned up. They expected it to be a routine trip, very much as a China Airlines freighter crew had only 10 months prior. They had been climbing out of Taipei in their 747-200 and were passing around 5,000 feet when they reported engine problems. They had a fault and needed to return to the airfield. The controller gave them a left turn to vector them back around, but after a couple of minutes they reported that they couldn't turn left. A right-hand turn was approved and acknowledged. That was the last anyone heard from the crew. The aircraft crashed right-wing down into a 700-foot hill, killing all five on board. When the investigators started crawling through the wreckage, they were puzzled to find only two of the four engines. A prolonged search eventually revealed the number three engine in the sea some distance away. It transpired that the engine had become detached from the wing, striking the number four engine, causing it to come free as well. It appeared that the failure of the fuse pins that held the number three engine onto its pylon had allowed the engine to come loose, a problem not unknown to the manufacturer, Boeing, and something that was about to haunt the LL crew. In circumstances that were eerily similar to the China Airlines crash, as First Officer Ohad climbed LL 1862 through 6,500 feet, the crew heard a sharp bang and the aircraft lurched to the right. The flight data recorder later showed that at 17, 27 and 30 seconds, both the number 3 and number 4 engines stopped giving data. Witnesses on the ground heard the bang and saw a dark plume of smoke trail from the 747 as objects fell from the aircraft. The captain must have taken control as the voice on the radio changed and First Officer Ohad called LL 1862, Mayday, Mayday, we have an emergency. Skipol came back with the runway in use, 06, and the wind, 040 at 12 knots. The stricken 747 was only seven miles away from the airport and, by then, at 5,000 feet, but was still too close to come straight in. They requested runway 27, the longest runway, which was granted. The controller asked them to head north and descend at 2,000 feet. Schiphol approach discussed the crew's requirements for the landing and they asked to start from a 12-mile straight-in approach. 
During the conversation, the captain could be heard calling for Flaps 1. The next instruction was for LL 1862 to turn right onto 100 degrees and to describe the problem that they had. The reply was, number 3 and 4 are out and we have problems with the flaps. The 747 flew through the requested heading by 20 degrees but was maintaining a gentle descent at 260 knots. Cleared for the ILS, they were three miles north of the centerline at 11 miles and 4,000 feet, but it took a long time for them to turn onto the runway heading and they flew through the localizer. The controller tried to turn them back, first heading 290 and then 310. The instructions were acknowledged, but First Officer Ohad added, We have a controlling problem. 25 seconds later, with the sound of the stick shaker and ground proximity warning system in the background, LL-1862 made its final transmission. Going down, 1862, going down. On seeing a large plume of smoke, the Schiphol Tower controller called his colleague working in the approach room and said, It's happened. It's over. The heavily laden aircraft struck the top of an 11-storey apartment building in Belmamir in a severe nose-down attitude. Debris was scattered over a 600-metre area and a fire started immediately. The scene was horrific, with huge fires blazing in the blocks. About 50 apartments took the direct impact of the crash. Even while fires were raging, Residents were scrabbling through the rubble, looking for survivors. But then looters moved in to exploit the chaos, and thieves descended onto the two shopping centres near the crash site. The airport fire appliances, already manned and in position, were quickly on the scene, and they described the scene as a fire of gigantic proportions that consumed all ten floors and was 120 metres wide. There were no survivors from amongst the crew or at the crash point. The investigation immediately centred around the attachment points of the number 3 engine. After it and the number 4 engine were recovered from a lake below the flight path, but some distance from the crash, it became obvious that the attachment pins on the number 3 engine, known as fuse pins, had broken, allowing the engine to come away from the wing. When it did so, it tore the leading edge of the wing between the two right-hand engines completely away and then struck the number four engine, causing it to detach as well. When Boeing built the engine pylons, in case an engine came adrift, they were designed to part cleanly, leaving the wing undamaged. Fuse pins at the front and back were supposed to fail first to ensure a controlled separation. However, the fuse pin design was not new and based on the needs of the 747, but on the earlier 707 pylon. Boeing did not conduct any structural testing of the pylon to positively determine its static strength, fatigue and fail-safe characteristics, 
but contended that since the Boeing 707 pylon had proved reliable, the 747 pylon would also be reliable. However, there was also a long history of near disasters, plus the Air China crash, that directly implicated the pylon design. In 1979, the number 4 engine of a 747 freighter started to break free during landing. In 1992, a 707 freighter lost both its numbers 3 and 4 engines when the lugs failed. Another 707 lost its number 3 engine, which fell off during a takeoff. A 747 was discovered to have a drooping number 3 engine, and an inspection revealed a fractured fuse pin. The list goes on, and well into 1993, when, five months after the LL crash, another 747 freighter suffered a separation of their number 2 engine during climb-out. Should the manufacturer and the regulatory authorities take a firmer hand on the problem? I shall let you be the judge, but I think I know what Captain Fuchs and his crew would have said. In response, the FAA issued a number of airworthiness directives addressing numerous fatigue problems in the pylon structure, including the fuse pins, lugs and fittings. Back in 1979, Boeing had been informed of cracks in the old-style bottle-bore mid-spar fuse pins and mandatory inspections were introduced to check for corrosion and for the application of a corrosion-preventive compound. In 1982, ten years before the LL crash, a new style fuse pin was introduced, but by 1988, cracks and corrosion pits were appearing in those as well, since it appeared that there was an absence of primer and corrosion-preventative compound on the inner surface of some of the pins. From the time of the original installation of the new pins, 23 reports of cracks had been given to Boeing, and on the 21st of September, 13 days before LL 1862 took off, the company met its operators to advise them it was developing yet another new style of pin. For the crew of the LL freighter and the people of the Belmamia, it was too little, too late. Because of the fire system logic, Captain Fuchs almost certainly had fire indications from his missing engines. His hydraulics and pneumatics were badly compromised and the control surfaces on his right wing had almost completely failed. It is not known if he understood the severity of damage or even that his engines had parted company. The airflow over the damaged right wing would also have made the only working aileron on that side much less effective. It's unlikely that he was aware that even flying at 260 knots, he was on the cusp of losing control. Subsequent evaluation indicated that to keep the aircraft straight, the captain would have needed full rudder and up to 70% of his lateral controls deflected to stay straight. This contravened the training that the crew would have had received, as Boeing manual stated, with two engines inoperative on one side, there should be enough rudder authority 
to allow the control wheel to be almost neutral up to max continuous thrust at manoeuvring speed. Why the crew accepted a right-hand pattern to position themselves for landing is unknown, but turning into the damaged wing wasn't the wisest direction, particularly when they tried to slow and configure the aircraft for landing. They had a very small margin of controllability, which they eventually exceeded, and after that, the crash was inevitable. But what of the ill-fated Belmamia? Initial estimates put the death toll on the ground as high as 200, but in the days following the disaster, this number was lowered to only 43, although the mayor of Amsterdam said that 240 people were missing. Official numbers were difficult to obtain, since so many occupants of the Belmamir were illegal immigrants and therefore not accounted for. In the aftermath, many stories grew about possible health issues that resulted from the crash. At the time, Boeing used a couple of hundred kilograms of depleted uranium in the tail as a trim weight, and the cargo also had 190 litres of dimethyl methylphosphonate, a chemical weapons convention Schedule II chemical, which, amongst other uses, is used to make sarin nerve gas. Authorities played down the danger of these substances, but nevertheless there has been considerable evidence of chronic illness amongst those living there that they have linked to the crash. When the spotlight of publicity hit the Belmamia, it did, however, do some good. A proposal for urban renewal was put forward that would attract more middle-income families. Those long-term inhabitants, however, had grown used to things and resisted plans to demolish some areas and change others. They referred to their neighbourhood as the colourful perspective of the southeast. It possessed ethnic diversity and a unique cultural flavour. However, Progress was made, with many high-rise buildings being renovated or torn down, whilst the more expensive low-rise buildings have been attracting higher-income families and students have found it a more affordable place to live when compared with the city centre. One place that has remained, though, is a memorial that was built near the crash site with the names of the victims. Flowers are laid at a tree that survived the disaster, referred to as the tree that saw it all. A public occasion is held annually to mark the disaster when no planes fly over the area for one hour out of respect for the victims. Well, that was a sad story. It is. It's quite an eye-opener as well, because I had no idea that the 747 suffered from this problem and for so long, uh, and that so many aircraft had been affected by it. Uh, So when I saw it, actually my eyebrows went up and I went, whoa, that's actually, you know, a relatively major thing. Now, you compare that reaction back in the 90s, with what has recently happened with the uh, 787 Rolls-Royce engine issue and the um, CFM-56 issue, and pretty damn quick, 
Uh, there are the FAA are in there with airworthiness directives that are requiring a great number of inspections and uh, will probably require a lot of changes. Back then, it seemed that months upon months could go by with significant uh, problems, crashes, and um, evidence indicating there is uh, a major uh, fault in the design of this particular part of the aircraft without a lot of action. And I, that, that is something that absolutely amazes me. Yeah, that is uh, kind of a head scratcher. Yeah, but it was a long time ago, as people in the chat room yeah. quite rightly mm-hmm. say. Uh, you know, hopefully we've gone move well past that. It's, you know, uh, 25 years ago. Um, and I hope that uh, both the company and the FAA um, are taking things a bit differently nowadays. Yeah, at least it seems that way. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Nick, for another fantastic plain tale. And just a reminder to everyone, we do have a plain tale page now on the website, and you can actually subscribe to Nick's Plain Tales as a podcast. All that information is there on the website. And thanks very much indeed, Jeff, for all the work you put into that. Are you being sarcastic? No. No. no that I was didn't detect any sarcasm. That was just probably sincere. Me a bit. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. Um, and all your hard work as well. So let's see. I think I skipped uh, number eight, which is uh, Tony. And he writes, yesterday, a very rare, hot, sunny April day in England yeah, this was this yesterday was on the nineteenth, eighteenth of April. So, uh, let's see. I was walking by the Thames in Windsor, happily tracking aircraft taking off from Heathrow. A bit later, we had lunch in a Riverside restaurant, and I noticed that the aircraft were now coming from the west and landing over Windsor. My wife asked me why that had happened, and I really didn't know. The wind was light; direction was difficult to determine, but I would have said southwest. I would have thought changing the runways round in the middle of a busy day was highly disruptive, and so I wondered what would trigger such an action. What do you guys think? As usual, thanks for the great podcast. Cheers, Tony. So, Captain Nick, since uh, you're kind of uh, living over there from that neck of the woods, I have a feeling you might know the answer. Well, I sought advice from someone who works in the greenhouse that's stuck on the pole uh, in the middle of the airport there at Heathrow. And um, he he didn't want to be named, but he asked to be called a representative at London Heathrow, which sounds fine to me. And his one word answer was wind. Cue the sound effect. (laughs) 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 Well, not that kind of wind. (laughs) Nice one. And he said, okay, slightly longer answer. Um, I'm sure your highly intellectual viewer stroke listenership are aware that aircraft ideally take off and land into wind and that and that therefore drives the choice in selecting which direction we're going to operate. However, we don't follow this principle exactly to the letter of the law. Firstly, because on a day when the wind is highly variable, we'd be changing ends every two seconds. And secondly, most airports have a preferential runway system but Heathrow as a general principle we will operate on the westerly runways 27 left or right due to noise considerations for the local communities 
This means that even if the wind was easterly at three knots, we may still be operating on the westerly runways. Obviously, we can't stay on the westerlies forever, though, and our general guidance is if the tailwind component starts to exceed 5 knots or the crosswind component 12 knots, we will switch to the easterlies, 9 left or right. Whilst it is the surface wind which primarily di dictates the direction we operate, we do also take into account the upper 3,000-foot winds to aid decision-making. We also have a Met Office Observer based at the airport who can provide us all sorts of forecasts, models, etc. to help whether the change in wind is temporary, a blip, which we may work through, or a change that means we do need to change ends. Yesterday, he's referring to the day Tony was uh, uh, asking about, the wind was southwesterly in the morning, hence the aircraft departing over Windsor during the walk. As the day went on, the wind swung towards southeasterly, with the forecast for it to continue around to due east, and therefore the end change was performed at 1300 local. In terms of an end change causing disruption, it depends on how much noise, sorry, how much notice we're able to create. On a day when the wind is forecast to swing around in advance, there's very little disruption at all. A time is decided between the tower supervisor and our colleagues at Swanwick doing approach as to when the change will take place and we arrange our traffic so that the last departure and the last arrival in the old direction occur by this time. Almost immediately, we then commence operations in the new direction, with maybe a stop of two to three minutes in departures and possibly five to six minutes in arrivals. If the end change is unplanned, such as a front moves through and the wind just swings, it may be a little more disruptive as aircraft will be required to be taxied from the old runway to the new one. Similarly, stuff on approach may need to be broken off, resequenced, etc. Normally, this may mean operations stop for a good 10 to 15 minutes at a minimum. And that was obviously my air traffic representative, Heifer, and thank you very much indeed uh, for that um, reply. What were you sorry for, by the way? <laughs> he turned back on his microphone while I was in the middle of saying something. So. <laughs> I had to abruptly stop what My I was bad. saying. My bad. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was. Yeah, we were just having our own little commentary. <laughs> having our own little commentary in the background here about what you were saying. All good things. Blah 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 blah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. No, excellent, excellent information. Yes, and it's so nice to know at least one or more air traffic representatives at London Heathrow. Oh yeah, this uh, this chap's a fine fellow, MIB. Uh, so. Uh, um, yeah, thanks very much indeed for that. Okay. Um, Matt writes, is there a process to help pilots adjust after an incident? Adjust what? <laughs> uh, with the recent <laughs> your Southwest dress. incident, <laughs> your, oh, never mind. Uh, Southwest incident made me wonder what, if any process a pilot has to go through to get back to flying after an incident such as that, do they have to undergo training, psychological evaluation, wait for the investigation to conclude, etc. And again, that's Matt Todd. Um, well, I, you know, we, I'm not sure exactly what 
what they do at Southwest Airlines, but I have a feeling it's probably very similar to Acme, where anytime we have any kind of a uh, a situation like uh, even uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dana, if you're there, um, uh, an abort situation, a high speed abort or any kind of an uh, emergency declaration at Acme, um, we are required to contact our duty pilot and uh, usually the duty pilot and, and a representative from uh, our safety department and or the chief pilot's office have to kind of decide whether or not to let us continue to um you know, fly our, our trip or if we were going to be taken off of it or whatever, but I'm not sure about the psychological evaluation. I'm sure there wouldn't be any training to have to undergo because they didn't do anything wrong. So uh, that's usually reserved for something that you, you know, you've made some kind of a procedural uh, error and then uh, they want you to go through some kind of a, a training event to, you know, make sure that all that is straightened out before returning to the line. But, um, uh, and as far as investigations are concerned, uh, I think it is pretty standard. If there is some kind of a, a big event that triggers some kind of a NTSB slash FAA investigation that yes, you are normally, uh, basically taken off flying status. And, uh, usually at least with my company, uh, the company will pay you for flying the trip, even though you're not actually flying the trip. So, it's a pretty good system. Interestingly, though, I don't know what they did for the pilots in this case, um, you know, but I did read an article that kind of detailed what Southwest did for the passengers. And I'm sure this is similar across large airlines here in the U.S. and, and around the world. But they actually had um, representatives fly up there pretty near to immediately um, to meet with passengers, to be on site um, for passengers who didn't want to continue on that day and stayed in hotels. The uh, Employees and representatives were actually available the next day to offer counseling and guidance. Um, so a lot of support goes into these types of incidents. Excellent. Hopefully some training on how to wear their oxygen masks as well. <laughs> that, would that would be, be good training. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They went into yeah. a cabin simulator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've identified yes. the following passengers as being deficient in their safety yes. <laughs> and evacuation procedures, and you'll need to go for remedial passenger training. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, and obviously they don't pay attention. But, yes, I, I was here the whole time listening. I'm sorry I didn't realize that my uh, – um, I was muted on Google meetups. Anyways, um, yeah, Jeff, you're absolutely right. Uh, as a as a former duty pilot, we would anytime you have an event above eighty knots, it requires uh, a flight ops management approval for you to continue. Uh, more times than not, that was not uh, not uh, necessarily necessarily the case. Uh, usually, they pull you offline. Um, that was my experience, at least. However, you know, when they asked about the psychological issue. Um, I have never seen anybody um, or any airline give the pilot any type of psychological help. Uh, if you remember the movie, I hate to, to, to go there, but the movie Sully, uh, you know, there, there's a, a lot of scenes in there when he's in the hotel room um, all by himself and suffering through. I don't know if he was, you know, if, if uh, Jeff Skiles or, or Captain Sully were offered any type of uh, assistance in that manner uh, we do have an eap program which if you were to need assistance in dealing with any time any type of instance where you would have uh you know an emergency situation like what just happened southwest or 
um, you know, landing on the Hudson or, you know, what just happened over there in Vietnam, uh, I think it would more be a self-help issue. I don't think the, the company is going to provide anything for you other than support and, and making sure you're paid. So um, that's just my two cents on that. It's interesting. And when I go for my uh, medical, I have a little box to tick which says, Do you, have you had an accident since your last medical? I often wonder what would happen if I ticked it. <laughs> what type of... <laughs> I don't know. What, is, what does the guy do? Does he go, uh... Right, you've ticked this box. I have to do some extra checks on you or something. I have no idea. Yeah, I have no idea either, but I don't know. I'm not going to say anything else. I, I think some sometimes some sometimes things are better unsaid. This from the other Captain Jeff. Uh, apparently, according to Pip, the good-looking. Better-looking, I the think. The better-looking one. Yes, the better-looking one. I guess that doesn't sound quite so bad when you say it that way i think that's how we put it yeah okay very funny pip you know i'm always getting little references in his uh, in his show uh, derogatory he's, he's references subtle. <laughs> no not, <laughs> not subtle, subtle at all no <laughs> okay let's do this one from colonel jeff the other captain jeff the good looking one departure american 1458 at a 2.2 climbing via the the eight thousand. American 1458, Phoenix departure, weather contact, climb and maintain, follow level 210. 210, American 1458-21. Yeah, opposite direction of us. I'm not sure it was actually going that way. We just passed it. American 1458, thank you. Sun Country 604, Phoenix departure, right of contact. Maintain, uh, correction, climb and maintain, fly level 210. Climb and maintain, level 210, Sun Country 604. Country 604, report of a drone moving southbound over Zydog. Use caution. All right, thanks. Sun Country 604, turn right, heading 030, when able, clear direct, Mr. Bill. Right, heading 030, Mr. Bill, when able, Sun Country 604. Sun Country 604, thanks. I'm trying to keep you east of uh, the reported drone, uh, but it is moving south, so use caution. All right, do you have an altitude on them or no? Uh, altitude uh, was reported at 8,000. All right, we're looking. No joy yet. American 1450, thanks for the report. Can I get uh, Albuquerque Center 128.45? See ya. 2845, American 1458. Departure left 633 is out of 2.3, climbing 8,000. Alaska 633, Phoenix departure, radar contact, climb and maintain, flight level 210. Climb and maintain, flight level 210, Alaska 633. Alaska 633, thanks. Um, report of a drone over Zydog moving south at 8,000, use caution. Okay, thanks for the heads up, appreciate it. What kind of nutcase would uh, see a drone at 8,000 feet? I thought you were going to ask which one would fly it, but I guess you're right on both accounts there. <laughs> no, uh, that's, he must uh, have eagle eyes. Yeah, I mean, man, that's, um, that's former, small. former fighter pilots. Eight thousand feet. Things, right? That's a. Uh, that's yeah. Obviously, he has really good eyes, mm -hmm. eagle eyes, because uh, he flew the eagle. Um, but uh, yeah, eight thousand feet. That that is a surprise. You can tell. You can hear the surprise in his voice. Or 
kind of irritation as well mm-hmm. uh, that he uh, that they saw this uh, drone and almost hit the darn thing. And but eight thousand feet, I didn't know that those things could go up that high. Well, we have one That's reported amazing. in one of our holding patterns at uh, our flight level one three zero. So yes, they do go that high. And if this thing was like four feet across. Chances are it was one of those really powerful commercial ones that was quite capable of climbing up there. I think if you read, um, I don't know that we finished reading what he actually said about it, but... um, Why don't you read what he said about that? He says, Captain Jeff, you may want to listen to the live ATC from yesterday, April 21st. That's what we just listened to. Around 0021 Zulu or 1720 local. um, Departing runway 25. What was that? Phoenix? Yeah, out of Phoenix. Climbing through 8,000 feet, they have a close encounter of the, quote, drone kind. It's my voice you're here talking to departure as the drone goes by under our under our right wing. I saw it about 200, out, 200 feet out in front of us. I thought it was a balloon until I saw the wings. So that may hint to what kind of drone it was. It was at least four feet across. Mm-hmm. Uh, FO only got a glance as it went by his window. Estimate it passed at less than 100 feet below our right engine. So wow. From... Colonel Jeff. Close call there, Captain Jeff. Um, and I know that Captain Colonel Jeff is listening. Yeah. Because he just sent me a private message. <laughs> and he took umbrage to my character characterization of being what kind of nut would <laughs> call a drone <laughs> at 8,000 feet. <laughs> uh, really? Oh. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's always cool to hear somebody in our community on the radio like that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, just sorry it was a... In this circumstance where, you know, people out there flying these darn drones, um, you know, they, they should know better. Uh, there's no reason for them to be, you know, mixing it up with commercial airline traffic or any other kind of traffic with humans inside. Well, from mm-hmm. that traffic that Fred showed us uh, of that drone that was being deliberately flown onto the approach uh, of aircraft. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then the operator was trying to flip it over so that he could watch the aircraft go underneath him and then flip the drone under uh, mm-hmm. and watch it depart away. Um, just shows that there are some people out there that just think it's very cool to take pictures of airliners using these pieces of equipment without really appreciating the danger that they're putting everyone into yeah yeah that was at uh, uh las vegas i think wasn't yes. it yeah that, yeah that frontier um mm-hmm. close call of course the frontier flight never i don't never think they saw, saw it. it yeah no. i mean you consider the size of most of them they're they're pretty small yeah, it's, it's 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 a miracle that we ever i mean they're probably we're probably going whizzing by these things all the time we just never see them yeah wow well, with your eyes, Jeff, I'm not surprised, but well, I didn't see anything. <laughs> Co- Colonel Jeff, with his eagle eyes, he's he's pretty damn switched on. I'm very impressed. Steph, can you help me? I'm trying to look at the uh, screen here. Is was that who was that guy that was just talking? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, just at a very inconvenient moment, you froze on me, so I couldn't hear what <laughs> your report. Perfect timing. <laughs> yeah. No, you're you were making a comment about my. Uh, my my great eyesight apparently was I? You know, oh, I just try. I can't imagine why I do such yeah. a thing. <laughs> I don't either. Okay, um, let's see. What should we do now? Oh, you know this one would be a good one too. Okay, uh, dispatcher Mike sixteen sent us um, an audio file to help answer TP in NJ uh, his question regarding SQM departures, which is SXM. 
SX. What did I say? XSM? You said okay. SQ. So yeah, oh, I'm sorry. SX. That's an X. Oh. This eyesight, Nick, wow. it really is failing him. Let me, <laughs> help, let me help what myself. What a shame he's sitting beside a doctor who can spot <laughs> these things. <laughs> yeah, I should just take my glasses off and just, you know, wing everything. Uh, TP's question regarding SQM departures. <laughs> just did it again. Dang it. Wow. I might Actually, I don't a, think that's his eyesight. No, I, I think it's dementia. Yeah, do we need to go to the hospital? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seth might be missing a flight tonight. Yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. There we go. I, I highlighted it, made it a little bit bigger. Sent the actress to the bishop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the boy. Correct. Family show. So, Family show, folks. Family show. <laughs> Evidence. <laughs> evidence for the the hearing uh dispatcher mike sent us some audio feedback to help answer tp from nj's question that we got the other episode what was the last episode i believe regarding sxm departures i have a feeling if dana was on the show and not staring at a big rock he might have gotten this yeah i know that's not what he said <laughs> 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 yeah glad to Glad to help as always. I was watching so, fish take, it a- <laughs> take it away, Mike. Captain Jeff and APG crew, it's Dispatcher Mike. Want to give uh, a little bit more information from TP's feedback on the last episode about uh, St. Martin. And want to give a little bit more depth to his question. Uh, if we don't recall, TP's question was, why did the American Airlines flight depart runway 28 well it generally was against the flow of all the other traffic it's at st martin some overview of st martin st martin is uh an airport with an airport elevation about 14 feet or four meters they have a single runway uh 10 to 8 and runway 10 is because of its geographic location is usually the runway that's always in use because, well, it's into the wind with the uh, trade winds that they get down there in the islands. So TP mentioned that there's a, quote, small hill at the end of runway 10. And I kind of want to put that into a little bit more of perspective. The small hill that TP mentioned is actually a 1,555-foot tall mountain and for everyone else in the world that doesn't use feet that's 474 meters so you're talking about 470 meters more than the airport elevation and that's a relatively close distance to the end of the runway so the reason why that american airlines jet took off on runway 28 is because they didn't actually have the aircraft performance to take off runway 10 and Acme does this a lot too. It all depends on the weight and it all depends on what is their uh, runway allowable takeoff weight. Um, The runway allowable takeoff weight is a performance calculation that the dispatchers, weight and balance, performance engineering, all of us get together. Basically, performance engineering gives us the numbers and we either use a chart or the computer to determine what our actual runway allowable takeoff weight is for a specific runway under specific atmospheric conditions. Those being temperature, pressure, uh, and then you can add weight or reduce weight uh, depending on if you have a headwind or a tailwind. 
So the runway allowable takeoff weight is the weight at which an airplane can, after engine failure recognition at V1 safely, option one, abort the takeoff and come to a complete stop on the runway available, or option two, continue the takeoff roll and clear all obstacles in the flight path by 35 feet through the final climb phase. So basically what's happening in St. Martin is you have an aircraft that is so heavy that it cannot complete option one or option two. And here in St. Martin, it would obviously be option two to clear all obstacles in the flight path. So there's also some other considerations that we have at St. Martin, and there's some other pilot procedures that the pilots and the flight crews have uh, to depart St. Martin. Some of those other procedures are in engine out departure, where this is a specific departure that is in the crew's paperwork, their tablets, actual books, and the JEP charts, where they actually have a specific procedure to fly in case they lose an engine on takeoff. This would be in St. Martin if you're departing runway 10. Now, a lot of the times when it is thunderstorm season or the summertime down in St. Martin and it's hotter and you might have to have to carry an alternate in the United States, wherever you're going, what hell you're going back to, be it Atlanta, be it Dallas, be it New York, where you might have to carry some extra fuel, you're going to be too heavy for this runway 10 departure. So that's why you have to go and depart runway 28. Now the performance numbers on the runway allowable takeoff weight are so much better on runway 28 because you don't have that climb limit weight. When you're departing to the west out of St. Martin, the only obstacle that you have at the end of the runway is the four-foot fence or six-foot fence that everyone hangs on to to surf your jet blast. You have nothing but open water out at the end of that runway. And because of this, and because it is such a better performing runway, uh, Acme Airlines actually has a different tailwind consideration at St. Martin for runway 28 than our normal tailwind takeoff consideration. And for the most of the aircraft that operate to St. Martin, a departure is approved with a 15-knot tailwind. That's a 1-5-knot tailwind opposed to our normal 10-knot tailwind. Now, this 15-knot tailwind, you would think, wow, you would think that it's so much worse on the performance to depart with a 15-knot tailwind, but in reality, it's not because of the mountain that sits at the end of runway 10. So I hope this uh, brought a little bit more information into why you saw an airplane depart opposite direction. Um, A lot of it really depends on the atmospheric conditions down there in St. Martin, but also a lot of it depends on how much fuel, how much passengers, how much baggage, how much cargo is actually loaded on the airplane for their takeoff weight. And remember, we're doing this all out of safety, that we want to have the safest available takeoff weight uh, for the passengers. And it's also mission-oriented. We want to carry as much weight as possible and not leave anyone behind. So, TP, I hope this answers uh, and clears up your question about uh, why you saw an airplane kind of kind of go against the flow down there in St. Martin. But I would agree with you, TP. If you're a true av geek, you have to go spend at least one afternoon on Maho Beach. Thank you, Mike, for sending us in that audio feedback to kind of explain 
why it is that TP saw, at least in his experience, American airlines using uh, the opposite direction where it seemed that all the other airlines were using uh, the uh, runway into the prevailing wind. All right. Well, you know what? Steph has a flight to catch to Germany. To, do we ever resolve if it's, is it Hamburg or Hamburg? I know Fabian. Um, I don't know that he was. They were starting to discuss the phonetic spelling yeah. of it, but I think I'll just ask someone when I get there. Yeah, well, I, that's a great <laughs> idea. You're going to be there, so you might as well find out from the I'll locals. ask a local. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that plus many, many more questions that are just, you know, confusing you and and uh, rattling around in your head that's the reason why you listen to the show <laughs> i'm not sure why you listen to the show we create more questions than we answer that I is think. true that is true uh so we're going to cut it off right now i so beg your pardon can get on our way uh, well no, you know no, please don't cut it off <laughs> i like it too much just be careful <laughs> all right uh let's see if you want to uh learn more about the podcast, you can head over to our great website, airlinepilotguide.com, where Arash kind of helped put that together and manages it and all that sort of stuff. So uh, check it out where you can find information about the crew, the community, the merchandise, coffee fund, APG Live, Plane Tales, and so much more. Again, that's airlinepilotguide.com. And we have a couple of uh, apps for the Android and iOS platforms that you can do much of the same thing that you would do on the uh, website. And just look for it in the respective app stores for your particular platform. Uh, social media? Social media. We are on Twitter using the handle at APG Crew. Uh, find us there. You can interact with all four crew members. And our uh, individual Twitter information is posted at the top of that page as well. You can also go over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guide to interact with us in the community there as well. More information about things like meetups, uh, articles from the internet that are of interest to the community, all kinds of good stuff going on there. And we also have a team on Slack and Hillel manages that. So Hillel, tell us how we can become part of that team. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you very much. And again, big thanks to our producer, Liz Piper. Uh, Liz uh, is responsible hey. for helping us manage a lot of the things behind the scenes, uh, including uh, lining up the feedback and news items for the show and so much more. So thank you, Liz, we for appreciate that. appreciate it very much. Absolutely. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Good luck eating those hamburgers, Steph. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.
I used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I guy I fly Boeing, I ain't going.